When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, always grateful that you join me for scripture study and grateful for anything you do to help spread the word, whether about these lessons or about the lessons of any of my colleagues and friends that are doing similar things. Uh, as many of you know, I study anti-religious rhetoric uh, academically, and so I spend a lot of time, obviously I spend a lot of time in scripture, but I also spend a lot of time sifting through the kinds of things that are said to attack faith, uh, ours as well as others. And it's shocking to see how quickly that proliferates and how much content is being produced around the clock, it seems, to try to tear down the beliefs of other people. In some ways, this is the ongoing battle of light and, dark, and, and darkness. And anything that you do to help extend that light is a blessing. Uh, anytime, it, it's interesting the way algorithms work <laughs> on, on social media, on the internet, on YouTube, on, on podcasts, that they're just trying to extend popularity. And so if something seems to be popular based on people's likes and clicks and interactions, then they'll just keep extending it to other people that the algorithms assume are like-minded. I always laugh that they must have be really confused about me. Uh, because half of what I see is so pro-gospel and half of what I see is so anti-gospel. They're probably wondering, who is this guy? Uh, and what kind of videos uh, or podcasts should we recommend to him? Well, I do have a strange feed. I'll give you that much. But if you're hoping to help people in their feed uh, and, and feed them the bread of life and, and give them the living water, then anything you do to interact with, with, with quality content helps extend the reach of that content. So I, I hope this doesn't come across as self-serving. I, 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 don't, I don't care to be seen of men, but I do care to let our light so shine, to let the Lord's light so shine so that people can glorify God and see his hand in people's lives. So thank you for every like and every share, every comment. Thank you for uh, your reviews on the podcast version or anything you do with the YouTube, the YouTube version. I, I hope, and again, whether that's these lessons or the lessons of any of my colleagues or the social media feeds from apostles and prophets and from the church, it's, it's interesting that the way it says, it, it's described in Hebrews chapter 12, a cloud of witnesses. And as we talk about the cloud, as far as cloud computing and things, uh, you know, the internet and so on, it's a different kind of cloud of witnesses that we need in our day. So if you're interested in helping steady the shaken, then the more we can help create good content and get it out before the eyes and ears of those that, that might be willing to listen, I'm amazed at just reading comments from people that stumble across something, whether here or, or from my friends, and, and it, it blesses them. It pulls them back. It helps combat the kinds of things that are flooding in from all directions that are trying to drag them away from, from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, we're all in this thing together, and, and I'm honored to be able to join you. 
Uh, I pray that these blessings are... It's interesting, some have asked, why don't you do more things that are strictly on, on anti-religious kinds of things? Uh, and I do hope, once we make the four-year cycle through Come Follow Me, I do hope to be able to produce some, uh, some more content that is, that is more directly related to faith crisis. Uh, in the meantime, when people ask, which of your lessons are, are meant to build faith and help people in faith crisis, I would simply say all of them. Because the best way to combat darkness is with light. And though it may not address specific issues, it does invite the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost is truly the only real solution to the battle between darkness and light. I testify of his ability and his power to clarify and to confirm truth. And it's because of that that I have all the confidence in the world in you and in the gospel, in the truth, in the process. And I trust people that if they'll simply open their hearts to the witness of the Spirit and, and not deny the Spirit's ability to confirm truth, then all will turn out fine in the end. As President Nelson has cautioned us very clearly lately, we will not survive the last days spiritually without the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. And I don't know of many better ways to invite his companionship than in serious study of the scriptures. President Benson told us that about the Book of Mormon, but the same I, say, I think would be true of other scripture, come whence it may, that a serious study a power flows into your, into your life the moment you begin a serious study of Scripture. Uh, we've been at this for a long time now, three years. And I pray that this serious study of Scripture has brought power into your life. I pray that continues to happen. Today we're going to be finding some powerful things. It's an interesting interlude in some ways between where we've been and where we'll, we'll be going next week. Last week and the week before, we spent the bulk of our time in the miracles of Jesus. And, and what a miraculous ministry was His. Last week, I hope that the Spirit taught you some individual truths from the raising of the daughter of Jairus and the healing of the woman who dared. Uh, she is known typically as the woman with the issue of blood, but as one of you, my friends, uh, reached out from New Zealand, of all places, uh, honored to have you with us, uh, she mentioned, rather than define her by her malady, like, like we too often do, to define her by her strength, to have the courage and and faith, that's what Jesus reached uh, uh, honored, right? Thy faith hath made thee whole. This is a woman who in faith dared to reach out and lay hold upon the grace of God and feel that virtue flow into her. So the, 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 the woman who dared, I think, is a beautiful new title for her. So thank you to my wonderful friend down under uh, for alerting me to that. So that, if that was the last two weeks, the ministry of miracles, next week we'll begin the, the parables. And we'll see an, an incredible array of parables of the kingdom. And then there's many more parables to come throughout the rest of our study of the Gospels. Where that leaves us today is right in between these miracles and these parables, at least in the Matthew account particularly. And what will we see in today's material? This is Matthew chapter 11 and 12 primarily. We'll get some, some help from Mark and Luke as well. But we will see John the Baptist. Uh, we're, in a coming week, we will see his death sadly. So to be able to honor his life and his ministry, that will take most of the first half of today's lesson. And then we'll spend the rest talking about the Sabbath and some of the miracles that Jesus performed on the Sabbath and the way that he often used the Sabbath to push back against those who were 
how in some ways ruining the purpose of the Sabbath by trying overzealously to protect it uh, from people like Jesus, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, We'll see some interesting details on that in the, the second half of this week's lesson. So I hope that you've got your scriptures open and your mind and heart open as well and are ready for the Spirit to teach us some truth. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. We'll start in verse 1 where it says, It came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve apostles, That's what we studied last week in Matthew chapter 10, that incredible training. This was the the MTC, the the missionary training center among the apostles in the ancient world to help them understand what their mission would entail. But by the end of that, having commanded his 12 disciples, or as we would say, the 12 apostles, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities which is exactly what he had told his apostles to do. So a great way of showing that Jesus was not asking them to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. He started this and was simply sending them out to extend and expand upon his own personal ministry. But that did not put his own ministry on hold. No, he kept serving right alongside them. And that to me is a beautiful invitation on our part too, that when we engage in teaching and preaching and serving and in leading, We are joining Jesus in his ministry, and I hope we sense his companionship uh, as we join him in this. Now we shift gears in verse 2 and see the object of our attention for, for much of today. Now when John, the Baptist that is, had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto them, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Now, this is really strange because of all the people who ought to know that Jesus is the one you've been waiting for, it's John the Baptist. He said it so himself, right? He, he recognized Jesus even in, in utero as he's kicking inside of Elizabeth's womb when Mary first approaches uh, with the baby Jesus developing within her own. Uh, this is one who was ordained by the angel, who, who knows what's coming, who is there and bearing witness That's one of the things that Nephi saw in vision, that the mission of John the Baptist was not just to baptize Jesus, but to bear witness of the Lamb of God. And that's exactly what he did. So what on earth are you wondering about, John? Is Jesus really the one that's going to come? Now, some have suggested, well, it's one thing to to bear testimony in, in good times. It's one thing to recognize Jesus when he comes to you and asks to be baptized, and it's it looks like you're in a good spot, he's in a good spot, and it's, we're ready for the kingdom of God to, to unroll. It's another thing when you're in prison and when you're suffering because of the witness that you've been bearing of the coming of Christ. As you have cried repentance to generation of vipers, including ones in high places. We'll see that detail in a later lesson. But to be imprisoned for your testimony, knowing that the person that you're bearing testimony of is out free, and you're perhaps wondering why he doesn't free you. Uh, to think of what Ammon is told on his missionary uh, message, or on his mission among the Lamanites. And when he finds out from the Spirit that Aaron is in prison, everything goes on hold. And he's supposed to go and free Aaron. That way Aaron's mission can continue and not just Ammon's. So, come on Jesus, if you're really the deliverer, then how about delivering me? Now, I guess it's possible that that's something that's going on in the back of John's mind. Though I doubt it personally because of the kind of person that John happened to be. So how do we explain this then of John sending two of his disciples? Well, maybe that's the answer. 
they are his disciples? Why are they still following John when John has already been telling people, Jesus is the one you ought to be following? There are so many examples of, G of John doing just that. Remember this sense of I must decrease, but he must increase? I'm a means to a greater end. I'm a forerunner. I'm the highway contractor, but I'm not the, the ultimate destination. And so the only reason I would ever want anyone to follow me is in hopes that I can then point them to the person that I'm following, who is Jesus. I, I, we don't seek popularity in what we're trying to accomplish. We are trying to get out of Jesus' way by putting people in the way to come unto him. It reminds me of a very well-meaning Joshua, son of Nun, who when he finds out that there are other people not named Moses that are doing important works and performing miracles, prophesying in the camp, he's so concerned about that that he runs to Moses and says, we got to stop this. Uh, we can't have other people detracting from, from your example. And do you remember Moses' response to an overzealous disciple? He says, envious thou for my sake? Are you worked up out of some kind of loyalty to me? If so, that loyalty is a little bit misplaced because it's not about me and it never has been, never will be. Remember, this is Moses, the meekest of all men. Well, John the Baptist could give him a run for his money. And if John were to think about a, disciples that wanted to stay true to their allegiance to him, and they start wondering, is this Jesus really the guy that we've been waiting for? I mean, after all, he hasn't done anything to help his cousin out, to help his forerunner out. He's, our, our leader is still languishing in prison. Maybe that's part of their concern. But envious thou for my sake? Are you worried that people are following him instead of following me? If they're following him, then I've been doing my job. And the fact that you are still my disciples instead of his makes me wonder if I haven't been clear enough. So please move forward and, and follow him. Now, if this has been hard to do and they haven't gotten the hints, then maybe I need to make it a little more obvious. Or better yet, let me help them convince themselves by inviting them to convince me. In other words, let me play stupid and act as if I didn't know for sure, and then send them forth, can you go get some news for me? I am trapped in prison after all, and I can't go find for myself if these things are true. So tell you what, would you go and ask this Jesus person if it's him or if we look for somebody else? So with this, shift to the Luke version, and notice chapter 7, verse 18 to 20. And the disciples of John showed him of all these things, now, this is coming right on the heels of the raising of the son of the widow of Nain, okay? And so, Jesus had just performed an incredible miracle. Raising the dead? I mean, that, that's, that's pushing the envelope even beyond the other kinds of miracles we've seen so far. And the disciples of John have heard about this. They've seen this. They're not in prison. Their master is. And so, they run back to prison to let him know this guy, Jesus, is performing incredible things. And they're telling John all about it. Now John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? 
So the Luke version is just adding a little context to what we saw in Matthew, that it's on the heels of all these miracles that are being performed. And John is sending them forth, okay? Now, when the men were coming to him, they said, John Baptist, <laughs> it's the only place in scripture you don't get the the, it's so interesting. John Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? So again, this is putting the words in John's mouth. And surely John is putting them, at, letting them out of his own mouth, not because of what's lacking in his mind or heart, but what is lacking in the heart and mind of his disciples. They still don't fully get it. And what better way to gain a testimony than to bear it? We've heard apostles and prophets teach us that for years, that a testimony is found in the bearing of it. Uh, no wonder we send out such young missionaries, because in helping bring other people to Christ, they end up coming unto Christ themselves. And as they bear witness of things and feel, it, and feel the Spirit confirm the truth of their message, now it's amazing that the number one convert for any missionary is the missionary themselves. And so John trying to, to leverage this opportunity, please go ask and come back and return and report. Let me know what you see. Kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. In Luke chapter 7, verse 21, in that same hour, Jesus cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind, he gave sight. So there are more miracles taking place, even as this conversation is occurring, in that same hour. So it's not just the rumors you've heard. It's not just the glad tidings of, of great joy that shall be to all people. It's not just the gospel, this ministry of miracles. It's happening as we speak. So you are eyewitness to these things. Now jump back to the Matthew version, and in chapter 11, verse 4 through 6, in response to this question that is coming from John, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. In the Luke version, it's what things ye have seen and heard. But past tense, present tense, it's happening all around you. Have an eye, see it. And then have a mouth, go share it. And then he describes for himself what he has been doing. These are the kinds of evidences that you can bring back. Here's your cloud of witnesses. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Interesting list. Oh, what credentials, so to speak, Jesus is offering them. Just go, go tell him what you're seeing here. And he lists all of these physical miracles first, all of which we've seen already. We've studied them. And then what does he say at the end of it? Even if, if this is a crescendo, what's the climax? Not even just raising the dead, but rather preaching the gospel to the poor. And blessed are those poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom your master John has been preparing for. It's <laughs> the stone cut out of the mountain without hands is rolling forth to begin to fill the earth. Go tell him that. And then that last line, which is sometimes a little uh, harder to understand. Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now, if it is John that's struggling, wondering why he's still, still in prison, when he'd much prefer to continue his own ministry for Jesus' sake, 
There are still highways to build up. There is still a voice to be heard in the wilderness. I still want to be doing more to prepare the way of, to prepare the way of the Lord. So let me out and we can multiply things. I'll, I'll be a 13th apostle for crying out loud. If John has been offended in any way, then perhaps that is a, a gentle caution to him. Blessed are you if you are not offended. Or more likely, it's perhaps to these disciples of John themselves. Perhaps they are offended. If this were really the, the Christ, wouldn't he help one of his own? If he is delivering the captives, I know captive number one that ought to be first and foremost on Jesus's list of people to be delivered. So are these, perhaps that's one of the reasons that they are being, being truer to John than to Jesus and hesitating, shifting their allegiance. If we leave John, then who does he have left? And why doesn't Jesus help him? Are they offended? Well, blessed are they if they are not. Remember also what, what Jesus says at the beginning. The first three words of his invitation to these disciples, go and show. Remember back in John chapter 1 when a few disciples of John the Baptist, when, he was, when Jesus is walking by and he sees them and he basically tells his disciples, he's the one I've been preparing for, so wean yourself off of me and go follow him. And what does Jesus say to them when they ask, kind of dumbfounded, awestruck, uh, where do you live? Oh, come and see. Come and see. Three-word invitation to those that are wondering. Now, in this case, three-word invitation to those that are going back to share the word. Go and show. And I love the, those are the, the flip side of the same, the same purpose, the same mission call. Come and see. And once you've come and seen, then go and show. So others can come and see as well. And again, what I love about this, if John is playing stupid, then Jesus is playing along. Oh, you mean John was wondering. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. Since John is, is so confused or curious about whether or not I really am the Messiah, uh, d d tell him, I mean, I wouldn't want him to have to take my word for it because it's an excellent question. And you know John. I mean, he wants to know for sure. So I'll tell you what, he, he might be a, a, hard, a hard sell on this. He might be a, a hesitant convert. So the best you'll be able to do is be his eyes and ears, since he's in prison and can't come and see himself. No, go and show him. Please do your very best to explain what I'm doing out here, what you've heard, what you've seen, what you are currently seeing as we speak. Let him know all of those things, including the preaching of the gospel to the poor, which is exactly what he did. Yeah, go tell him that, and we'll just see if it's sufficient to convince him. Okay, good luck. I, I can tell you're good missionaries, good disciples. Uh, so go help your master, okay? Help him see. And I picture these two disciples like, oh, yeah, yeah, but that's, that's true. We, we got we to gotta do our very best. We got to show him. Because this, can you believe what we've seen? This is really the Messiah. So I picture them running back to John uh, and just so on fire with the witness that they have witnessed and are now witnessing. Okay, witness with their eyes, now witness with their mouth. John, I know this might be hard for you to believe without you actually seeing it yourself, but we are your eyes, we are your ears, and we saw eyes of the blind opened. We saw ears of the deaf able to hear. 
He raised the dead. He is, it's got to be him. Please believe me. And I wonder how, oh, how did John not crack a smile? How did he not come out of character? How did he keep playing dumb? Like, wait, are, are you sure? Tell me again what you saw. Oh, really? Really? Mm, wow. And you, you think this is evidence, huh? Okay, wow. Well, if he's really the one, what do you think you ought to do next? I mean, if I were out of this prison, you better believe I'd be following him. Since he's the one I've been trying to follow and help others follow all along. I would want somebody to use the highway I've been building. Exalted valleys and lowered mountains, rough places smoothed, crooked places made straight. Go run to him. I wish I could. And you picture what these disciples of John would do as they now become full-hearted disciples of Jesus. I love what John is doing. I love who he is. The entire purpose of his mission was never about himself. It was always looking ahead and pointing forward, and even from prison, being a missionary. That nothing, no bars, no cell can keep him from his discipleship. Turning people to Jesus, no matter what. I see that happening from people, by people who are confined to cells of their own. Trapped in a hospital bed, for example. But pointing people to Jesus. Suffering from sorrows of their own, and yet even in, in bondage to their own circumstances, are doing all within their power to point people to Jesus Christ. Bless you for that, and bless you, John. And Jesus would do exactly that. In fact, turn from this mental image of these disciples running back to the prison to tell John about it, and then stay with Jesus. Having just had this experience, thinking about this cousin, this friend, this companion, and then saying this to the people that were around him, People that had already weaned themselves off of John and come to Jesus. But Matthew chapter 11, verse 7, As they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? In other words, was it just curiosity that brought you out of Judea and Jerusalem and all the surrounding areas to go down to, jo to Jordan to see this man, this wild man, with camel hair and leather, Oh, fresh off of a, a, a snack of, of wild honey and locusts. What were you hoping to see there? What went ye out into the wilderness to see? And then he provides a first option of what they might have been expecting. Option one, a reed shaken with the wind. Is that what you were expecting when you out, went out into the wilderness? Now, I love the mental image here. Jesus, who was so good at painting pictures in his parables, is doing one here. Especially if they were used to the, 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 the banks of the Jordan River. And imagine the, the cattails growing out of it, kind of these marshes. Okay? And imagine if the wind blows along the Jordan River Valley. What are those cattails going to do? What are those reeds going to do? Well, they're going to be shaken with the wind. 
And if the wind is blowing east to west, then guess which way the reeds will bow? To the west. <laughs> and at the moment the wind picks up and shifts, uh, uh, blowing to the other direction, then what are the reeds going to do? They're going to shift in that direction too. I have yet to see an obstinate reed stand up for what it believes. No. It just bows to the prevailing winds of popular opinion. Is that what you expected of John? Because that is not the Baptist. He is in prison because he's willing to speak truth to power. There's no, he never had a wet finger, even though he was, always seemed to be immersing people. What I mean by wet finger, you ever heard that? When, the, when you're trying to figure out which way the wind is blowing and you can't see the, we, the, the leaves on the trees? Uh, so what do you do? You lick your finger and you hold it up because if your finger's wet, the, the wind is a little wind chill factor, okay? And whichever side of your finger gets cold, that's the, the direction the wind is blowing from, okay? That's, that's the idea of a wet finger. That way, and, and to be honest, places like Washington, D.C. are full of wet fingers because what are politicians typically trying to do? They're trying to ride the winds of prevailing popular opinion. And which direction do they want me to vote? Now, to a degree, that's a good thing because they are our representatives in Congress, right? Then again, so often it's just bowing to the, the currents of culture rather than standing up for constitutional law or what is, is right. And what I love about Jesus' response here is that's not John at all. If I were to think of the wet fingers in Washington, D.C. and compare them to the fingers in Salt Lake City, there's no wet fingers there. The prophets and apostles, think about the apostles Jesus sent forth last week and all that instruction in chapter 11. To see chapter 10, uh, excuse me, chapter 10. Just to see chapter 11 of Matthew building on that. And John, this forerunner, he didn't care what people thought. Otherwise, he probably wasn't, wouldn't have been walking around in camel hair and leather. Okay, not exactly the, the, the style up in Jerusalem. To call out the generation of vipers, the scribes and Pharisees, the hypocrites, to talk to the, the Roman soldiers and give them some ways to repent. Oh boy, he was not a reed shaken with the wind. And we cannot afford to be that either. We must stand up and stand out for truth the way prophets and apostles always have. Now that was option number one. What about option number two? In verse eight, Jesus says his question again, but what went ye out for to see? And here's another possibility. A man clothed in soft raiment? Again, there's a, a nod to his camel hair and leather. Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses, or in the Luke version, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. And I imagine that many of the people that came out of curiosity to see John and his preaching of repentance and his baptism by immersion, they probably left king's courts to come. And yes, they were clothed in soft raiment, not the kind of asceticism that is associated with a, a, a hair shirt. Imagine how itchy camel hair would be. But John is an ascetic. He is a wilderness wanderer. He is a Nazarite, willing to live a higher law, trying to prepare for the lawgiver himself. 
So don't expect somebody in soft raiment. Don't expect someone gorgeously apparelled, living delicately. It's amazing to see. It, to me, it, 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 it's dumbfounding when people accuse the apostles and prophets of trying to make money off of tithing for themselves. What kind of retirement are they going to be able to spend it in? No, they, <laughs> there's no soft clothing it's just the, the, the uncomfortable shirt and tie constantly. It is long hours and, and working weekends, building the kingdom of God wherever the Lord sends them. And they're not living delicately. It's a hard life, but one that they willingly accept. They didn't campaign for it. They weren't licking fingers, hoping for enough votes to carry the day. No, it was here am I, send me and when they were called, they went. Go and show, that's all they ever do. And even when they're in prisons of their own old age, or infirmity, for example, they're still sending would-be disciples to Jesus. It's amazing. In some ways, if he had been in this for himself, speaking of John, or any other disciple or apostle of Jesus, then, yeah, <laughs> I'll take some soft clothing. I'll take a king's court, but that's priestcraft. And that, this second option ends up leading back to the first option. If I'm in this to be seen of men, if I'm in this to be clothed delicately, softly, then I have to be really careful what I say. Because I can't afford to offend people that might otherwise put something in the plate and make some offerings to me. That's not John. He doesn't care what people think. And he can back that up because he doesn't care if people will stick around or not, if they will pay or not. That's not what he's trying to accomplish. It's an amazing, amazing ministry. And it's not about him at all. No priestcraft, not with a 10-foot pole. Jesus then gives a third option for these curious onlookers. If it wasn't to see a reed, if it wasn't to see soft raiment, then what about this? Verse 9 and 10. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? If that's what you were looking for, then that's what you found. He said, yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. In the Luke version, much more than a prophet. And then Jesus explains who John really is. For this is he of whom it is written. Yes, Jesus knows his scriptures too. Now, he knew the verses that referred to him by way of his own Old Testament patriarchal blessing. He knew the parts of that ancient patriarchal blessing that referred to his forerunner as well. So here he goes, quoting, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Think about that. How does that verse establish John's credentials as someone who is more, yea, much more than a prophet? Think about it in these terms. What do prophets do? They prophesy of Christ. The spirit of, of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus, the book of Revelation says. So every prophet has been bearing witness of Christ. Uh, the way Abinadi said it, all of them have spoken more or less concerning these things. But if that's the role of a prophet, to bear witness of some future coming of Jesus, or looking back to testify that he has come and will yet come again, how was John different? How was he much more than they? 
because he wasn't just prophesying of the coming. He was preparing for that coming directly. Everyone else's ministry was crescendo, was prelude leading up to John's ministry. But to have the one that comes right before Jesus, to prepare the way most directly, and then to initiate the kingdom himself by baptizing Jesus and fulfilling all righteousness right alongside him. Wow. No wonder he is more than a prophet. It also makes me wonder about the generations in this dispensation of the fullness of times all of which are trying to prepare the earth for the coming of Christ. We've been doing that since the days of Joseph Smith. What went ye out into the wilderness to see in our day? What kind and caliber of disciples are we becoming? Because with each passing generation, we're getting closer and closer to the fulfillment of everything we've been preparing for. And what will those disciples be like when Jesus finally comes? Oh, prophets all in some ways, lowercase p, and much more than prophets. Because their testimony of Jesus Christ is, is in those final moments before fulfillment. Oh, would to God that it might be in my day. <laughs> that be it sooner or later in it, I will rejoice. And here Jesus is rejoicing in John since John always rejoiced in Jesus. One more thing he says here in verse 11. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Luke clarifies, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Again, these are superlatives coming from Christ himself. Okay? You, you can't get higher praise than this. And yet, to put John back in his place, interestingly enough, he continues, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And that's a little surprising. Uh, on the heels of this superlative statement, nobody that's ever been born of women have, is greater than John. And yet, even he is outshined and outranked by the least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, a couple of possible interpretations of that. One is, since John was prelude and preview, but Jesus has come. Remember John's first words of public ministry, according to Matthew, is repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus said the same thing in his first words of public ministry in the, John, in the, in the Matthew account. Excuse me. The kingdom is at hand. It's here. It's, it's in Jesus. So if John's ministry basically ends as Jesus' begins, he's passed the baton, and then he fades into the distance, or into prison and on to death. But now the kingdom has come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's the Lord's prayer for you. It's in Jesus. And so now that the kingdom is here, anyone that transfers allegiance from John to Jesus, even if you're the least in the kingdom of heaven, the fact that the kingdom, that the king of that kingdom is walking among you, you have fulfilled what the mission of John was meant to fulfill. So you're taking a step forward, standing on the shoulders of giants, as they say. And no one was more gigantic than John. But here you are, least in the kingdom, but you're on his shoulders. 
peering up and over and seeing Jesus beckon you to follow him on the horizon. That, that's one possibility. Another is, was Jesus being self-referential here and referring to himself as the least in the kingdom of heaven? At least that's what people think of me. Those Pharisees that are guarding the gates, thinking that I'm the least and last to ever enter. That's what we're going to see so much of in the second half of this week's lesson, in terms of how Jesus honored the Sabbath, which in the Pharisees' mind was not honoring it at all. Is Jesus least in the kingdom of heaven? Joseph Smith himself took that interpretation and said, whom did Jesus have reference to as being the least? Jesus was looked upon as having the least claim in God's kingdom and was least entitled to their credulity as a prophet, as though he had said, he that is considered the least among you is greater than John. That is I myself. He was the preparer of the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So follow me. All of those would-be disciples of John become disciples of Jesus. And many had already made that transition. If you look at the, the Luke account of this, in Luke 7, verse 29 and 30, and all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. Meanwhile, what about those that weren't justifying God? But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. And that's really what's making the difference. There are those who justify God, accept this, this word from Jesus, and there are those that reject that counsel. And interesting, the hint that you get in this passage as to why, the ones that believed Jesus' words there were the ones that accepted John's baptism. The ones that rejected Jesus were the ones that had rejected John. Interesting. They are peas in a pod. They are forerunner and fulfillment. And how you respond to prophets is typically how you'll respond to the Lord. Whether by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. It's interesting with, with religion. It's such it's not just life and death. It's salvation, damnation. It's, it's ultimate concern is how some people have defined religion. And in this area of ultimate concern, no wonder there is such polarization. There's not a lot of middle ground here. You believe or you don't. You're in or you're out. And we'll see Jesus hint at some more of that later on in this week's material. But if you have accepted I mean, there's always going to be lovers and haters. There's always going to be light and darkness. Uh, people that attack and people that defend. And so much of it depends on which, uh, how have they been living. And those that are rejecting God's counsel because they didn't accept those invitations to repent, well, no wonder they're coming from that angle. If you go back to the Matthew version, chapter 11, Notice what Jesus then says, verse 12 through 15. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence. And the violent take it by force. That is the kind of opposition we're up against. And we're seeing that. John is suffering that violence as we speak in prison. Yes, these Pharisees and lawyers rejecting his counsel, rejecting mine. That's what we're up against. So are you prepared to, <laughs> to come into the kingdom? against all this opposition? 
Now, it's interesting because the New Living Translation phrases things slightly differently. I actually like this one. It says, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. In most other translations, it's the, the, the powers against the kingdom in both phrases. It suffereth violence and the violent take it by force. But the New Living Translation reverses the first half. It's not just that it's suffering in the first phrase and suffering in the second. No, it's suffering in the second phrase because it's forcefully advancing in the first. This is kind of the clash of army against army and light and darkness going head to head. And honestly, that's one of the reasons persecution really rears its ugly head. I remember as a missionary, my sister sending me a note in the MTC that just said, opposition is the evidence that truth is at work. And I love that. It, through my study of anti-religious attacks and, and rhetoric and so on, it's interesting that the rises of anti-religion coincide with the rise of religion. And specifically even down to the denominational level. There was a period of American history that was intensely anti-shaker. We're not at that stage anymore because there's like two living shakers left. But during the mid-1800s, when Shakerism was on the rise, the period, the era of manifestations, it was called, as their church was really starting to spread, that's when opposition to Shakerism grew as well. And so, no wonder we're sensing more and more opposition with John in prison and Jesus warning apostles that you will be called before kings and governors and don't, take no thought beforehand. Don't be over-anxious what you're going to say because... I'll, I got your back. You'll know what to say. But also, be willing to lose your life. That's how you'll find it. It's like, whoa, we're, we're going to be up against a lot. Yeah, look at John. Look at me. Look around you. And if you're feeling the crosshairs on your chest, notice it's because the adversary is concerned about what you'll be able to accomplish. The, the violent are trying to take down the kingdom by force. But please realize that the only reason they're concerned about it is because the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. And as Joseph Smith proclaimed boldly in the face of all of his persecution, no unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. We will see the fulfillment of that promise in our day as well. But Jesus goes on, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, Again, he was the end of the prelude. That was opening act. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. This is that preparer of the way, the spirit of Elias upon him. He was the Elijah 2.0. And then Jesus says, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Which is Jesus' way of saying, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Are you getting this? There's something beyond surface level here. And if you have eyes to see, you'll see it. If you have ears to hear, you'll hear it. Are you getting what I'm saying to you about John, this prophet who was more than a prophet? Do you understand what I'm saying about him and what that says about me? I am that I am. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. <laughs> The one you're looking for and waiting for, I am he. 
the kinds of messianic announcements that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is beginning to make, I think he's dropping more hints here. No wonder there's been opposition and it's increasing in our day. This is the grand crescendo that's been picking up speed ever since John began to cry repentance in the wilderness. Now, there's a JST of this that adds even more. Joseph Smith's translation of Matthew 11, 13 through 15. Jesus says, But the days will come when the violent shall have no power. For all the prophets and the law prophesied that it should be thus until John. Yea, as many as have prophesied have foretold of these days. And if ye will receive it, verily he was the Elias, who was for to come and prepare all things. You see, all past prophets leading up to John himself have suffered through periods of Oh, troubled anticipation. We'll see this later as Jesus says to his apostles, oh, righteous men and women have been waiting to see the things that you see all around you, but they died before the day came. You get similar things in, in Hebrews chapter 11. They were waiting for a country, waiting for a kingdom. Well, the king of kings is here, ready to usher in that kingdom. No wonder there's been persecution and anticipation up till now. No wonder it's intensifying as I'm trying to bring forth the kingdom. But also, please understand that I've come to change all that. Remember what, I, what, the, what the disciples of John ran back to prison to tell him they'd seen. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Oh, it's go time. So go and show and then come and see. The question is, will people do that? Will they, will they accept that? Will they be the ones that accept John and therefore accept Jesus? Or the ones that reject John and therefore reject Jesus? How you treat prophets is typically how you'll treat the person who is commissioning them and sending them forth. So look at chapter 11 of Matthew, verse 16 and 17. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. Interesting analogy here. What are you like? You're a bunch of little kids sitting in the market. What are kids going to be doing in the market? They don't have any money to buy, and they don't have any, anything to sell. So they're just going to kind of sit around figuring out stuff to do to pass the time. And most of that's probably going to be playing games. So how about this one? Uh, how about we pretend we're piping and then you guys can pretend you're dancing. That'll be fun. We'll have a little mini party here in the marketplace. Or if we don't feel like we're not, not in that mood, well, how about the opposite? We'll mourn and then you can lament. I do this with my sunbeams all the time where I'm like, happy face. And then they, they mimic my smile. And I'm like, oh, frowny face. And I go, show me happy. Big smiles. Show me sad. And they do that. And a bunch of three-year-olds and four-year-olds know exactly how to do that. Are you getting your cues from the teacher? And sadly, what Jesus is hinting at here is you guys don't get it. Uh, on the one hand, there's this sense of playing games. Are you a bunch of immature, bored children sitting around while everyone else has work to do? And you're playing religion? Is that what it is? Are you doing it to be seen of men? Are you fasting? Oh, that's one of those mourn and lament. You know, you're disfiguring your face so it looks like you're fasting. But is it real? the real fast or are you just pretending? 
Are you standing on the street corner so you can be seen and heard of men as you pray? Because that's just, that's fake faith. That's hypocrisy, remember? And a hypocrite is an actor that wears a mask that they hide behind. Are, is this just pretend for you? Is that what the law of Moses has become? Because I've come to destroy that, <laughs> but to fulfill the law and its purposes. On the other hand, am I trying, like I said before, am I trying to give you cues and you're not reading them? And when I mourn, you don't lament. And when I pipe, you aren't dancing. I'm not playing here. Thy kingdom come, it has. It's here. I am. So follow me. You see, the problem is, as far as they were concerned, look at verse 18 and 19. John came neither eating nor drinking. Again, he's the ascetic type, right? He's the, the Nazarite with his vow, and he's not going to touch anything for the fruit, the fruit of the vine. Uh, he, he's not going to come to the marriage at Cana, okay? He's out there in camel hair and leather crying repentance. That's the way he came, because that's what he was called to accomplish. And yet, what was your response? And they say, he hath a devil. Like, what kind of insane, crazy person? What kind of, I mean, the wilderness is where the devils are, all right? That's where, that's where Jesus was when the devil came to tempt him, Right? You think of the demoniac and, and legion out there in the wilderness. Well, there's John for you. So no, just cross out the list on, cross him off the list. He can't be a preparer of the way. Meanwhile, if that's the mourn and don't lament, how about the pipe and don't dance? Because that's what I came doing. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. I, I turned water into wine. And yet, what's your response to that? They say, oh, behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Oh, make up your mind. Darned if you do and darned if you don't. We come with a life of self-denial, and you think that is overzealous. That's too austere. No one could live that way. Or we come with joy and rejoicing, and you think that we're too hedonistic, and we're just... We're, we're unaware of the challenges of the day. Too pessimistic, too optimistic, too much mourning, too much dancing. Make up your mind. To understand what they're, what they're getting at here, no wonder neither John nor Jesus can seem to win with these people. The Lord will try everything he can. There's an amazing verse in Doctrine and Covenants, section 43, that describes that. He pulls out all the stops, explores every option. What is going to help you change? More justice? More mercy? More Javert? More Valjean? I mean, what, what are we going to do here? More mourning or more joy? I need thee every hour in joy and pain. And whether in my joys or in my pains, Jesus will come to me. He will try to lead me out of whatever I find myself in, he's going to try every option. And, and when all is said and done, if we'll just respond to his invitations, it's all going to work out. That's how he, what he hints at at the very end of this passage, where he says, but wisdom is justified of her children. Another way to say that, wisdom is proved right by her deeds. In other words, time will tell. You immature children, plain religion, someday you'll grow up. 
and you'll figure it out. In fact, you'll know that your parents had, had it figured out better than you thought. Those of you who are struggling with children that can't take you seriously, give it time. And eventually, wisdom will be justified of her children. Kids will grow up, understand what you were trying to accomplish, and maybe even thank you for it. We'll hold out hope, we'll see. Now from there, Jesus oh, channels some of his inner John the Baptist and begins to cry some more intense repentance to a generation of vipers slithering all around him. Still in the Matthew version, he says in verse 20 to 22, Then began he to upbraid the cities, to chastise them, to chasten them, wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. I mean, this seems to be a moment of frustration for Jesus, or better said, a moment of righteous indignation, because he has given them so much evidence. If all it took was these disciples of John to come and see a few more miracles, to hear, have it confirmed to them what the, the word that's being spread, and they want to run back to John to tell him the good news, then why aren't the people in these cities who've seen all these miracles up close and personal, why aren't they repenting? So he says to them, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! These are Israelite cities around, around the Galilee. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, and remember those are Gentile cities outside the borders of Israel, Ah, if it would have been done there, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Yikes. Israelite cities being judged by Gentile cities and being found wanting. And remember when Jesus calls them out at the synagogue in Nazareth. And says, yeah, lots of Israelite widows, but no, Elijah went to the widow of Zarephath. Lots of Israelite lepers, but no, Elisha went to Naaman the Syrian. If, and, and how did they respond? Naaman came away trusting the God of Israel. The, the woman of Zarephath, the widow, came to know that Elijah represented the true God from neighboring Israel. If I had served my mission, Jesus is saying, outside of my own people, they would have listened. They're starting to listen in the Decapolis. They're starting to listen in Samaria. Are you listening in Galilee? Are you listening in Judea? Are you listening in Jerusalem? Interesting what he's asking. In some ways, this is like Helaman chapter 15, when Samuel the Lamanite is crying repentance to the Nephites and lets them know, man, if my people had had every spiritual advantage that your people have had, they would not have fallen away. Look at the anti-Nephi-Lehi's for Exhibit A. Look at the stripling warriors for Exhibit B. Look at me for Exhibit I mean, There's so many examples of righteous Lamanites by the end of the book of Helaman. And Samuel, an outsider, calls out the insiders with his version of where much is given, much is required. Jesus will reiterate this, making it even more stark in verse 23 and 24. And thou Capernaum, and that's really been the, the seat of operations up there in the Galilee. You, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, having the king of heaven himself reside among you, you shall be brought down to hell. How's that for role reversal? 
For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Wow, if you thought it was <laughs> fighting words to compare Chorazin and Bethsaida to Tyre and Sidon, well, take Capernaum and compare it to Sodom. And, oh yeah, they're ready to throw down. How dare you? If you're elevating John above other prophets, how dare you minimize us beneath a city that was that is synonymous with sin, destroyed by fire and brimstone. You've condemned our city to hell? Well, no, you have. Because I came trying to exalt you to heaven. By the way, we insiders better not hide behind the fact that, oh, oh good thing I'm not from Chorazin or Bethsaida. Good thing I've never, never been to Capernaum before. Well, is Jesus calling out insiders, including modern-day ones, for what we might call being spiritually spoiled? Because in a way, what Jesus... Again, back to this idea of bored children in the marketplace. Are you that spoiled? I've, have I given you so much that you take it all for granted? Have you earned so many wages just to put it into a bag with holes that you don't think you need to start sewing up the bag? Because, oh, he'll just keep on paying us. He'll keep on pouring out the windows of heaven whether or not we rob God. Does that make sense? Uh, woe unto you, Salt Lake City. Woe unto you, Provo. Woe unto you, I think of this in my BYU students. I think of this in terms of myself. Woe unto you, Jared, for having been raised of goodly parents and given so much evidence of my hand in your life. What will you do with the overabundance of light I have given you? For where much is given, much is required. I think sometimes we need Samuel's Lamanites to come in from among us, converts that appreciate every morsel of, of bread of life, every sip of the living water, and are shocked at the overabundance that we might take for granted. Powerful reminders here. And then turning to the source of every good reminder, Jesus prays out loud. And it's interesting what he says. Verse 25 and 26, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Oh, who are the babes? Who are the wise and prudent? Who are the insiders and who are the outsiders? And who gets the gospel and in what order and at what time? Remember last week to the apostles, don't yet go to the Gentiles. Don't yet go to the Samaritans. Even though I've been kind of <laughs> jumping the gun here and there myself. We have to trust God on this. And who is he giving much to? And who is he only giving a little? And someday the first, last, and last first, it's going to be okay. Joseph Smith taught this, that when all is said and done, the world will admit that God knew what he was doing, that the judge of all hath done right. 
And here the Lord is admitting that already and thanking the Father for his omniscience. For so it seemed good in thy sight. Honestly, if there was a, level, a sense of, again, I hesitate to call it frustration, but righteous indignation. Why did we give you so much when you have fallen so far short of your potential? And yet, placing his trust in an all-knowing father, I know, what, I know that you know what you're doing. That someday, wisdom will be justified of her children. Well, here I am, the child of capital W, wisdom, and I'm justifying thee. It's, if, if that's how it seemed good in thy sight, then I, then I trust it. I wonder if this is one of those early previews of a much more intensified prayer in Gethsemane when Jesus says something similar. Is this a foreshadowing of not my will, but thine be done? For so it seemed good in thy sight. The prayer, in a way, continues. He keeps talking about the Father, though he now turns to the people around him. He says in verse 27, All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. And that's what I've been trying to do. The JST of that clarifies it somewhat. They to whom the Son will reveal himself, they shall see the Father also. It sounds a lot like what Jesus will say in John chapter 14, when Philip gets a little ahead of himself and says, Oh, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus is like, what do you think I've been doing for the last three years? There's never been a better example of like Father, like Son, than the Father and the Son. And for these past three years of mortal ministry, I've been trying to embody, the word made flesh, embody what the Father is like. So if you've seen me, you've seen him. What would the Father do in this situation? The same thing I'm doing. No wonder I look to him and trust his perfect will. I'm hoping that you'll do the same. You see, back to this no mourning or rejoicing, and the scribes and Pharisees are trying to confine you into some, some narrow, almost stoicism, where you can't be too sorrowful and you can't be too happy. No, the Lord proves the contrary. It's not by eliminating both sides, but by embracing both sides and knowing which side to lean into in any given circumstance. He's neither too much Javert nor too much Jean Valjean. He's the perfect balance because the Father is. So look to him, turn to him, and God... Again, in context here, God is neither the unfeeling lawgiver, nor is he the cheap grace, put it on my tab, and eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and you'll come home, and I'll forgive you. No, he, has a, he strikes a better balance than that. And so does Jesus, and that's what Jesus has come to personify. Don't confine God to your narrow parameters of impassivity. A God without body, without parts, without passions. No, just the ultimate celestial stoic. That's not him. And that's what the Lord is going to show over and over in the next chapter, chapter 12, as he 
honors the Sabbath in a way that <laughs> confounds the so-called guardians of that day. That's not what God is like. God will mourn with those that mourn, and he will comfort those that stand in need of comfort. God will rejoice with you. He'll be there for you in joy and pain. That's who your Father in heaven is. So come see my version of God. Come see what he's really like. In fact, as this chapter ends, verse 28 through 30, such famous words, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And think about what rest would mean for a common laborer in the first century A.D. Where you don't have 40-hour work weeks, and you don't get paid time and a half for overtime. You, the Sabbath is a day of rest because it's the only day that you can rest. And in some ways, it's hard to keep because it's hard to live off a six-day wage when you have seven days of a week to live through. To struggle and scrimp and save and suffer and just try to make ends meet week to week. To be promised rest. So many of the parables of Jesus talk about workers, a sower, sowing, a shepherd out there seeking sheep, because you can't afford to lose one. Even if you have 99 others, that's 1% of your potential income, and you can't live off 99. You're barely making it at, what, at 100. So if you are laboring, if you are heavy laden, especially if you're crushed down under some kind of pseudo-spirituality, some kind of religion to be seen of man that won't let your soul expand, if you are heavy laden by laws, quote-unquote, that are keeping you from the lawgiver, then come unto me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Think of that kind of imagery, again, for a common laborer who, if you have enough money, you dream of having a yoke of oxen, something to bind them together to be able to have more power than you otherwise would. Otherwise, what do I do? Use a hand, a, a, a hoe, to try to scratch out an existence in the stony soil of Israel? Oh, to have any beast of burden to help share my burden with me? To have two, to yoke them together? Maybe I can get ahead. Maybe I can make ends meet. But the Lord instead to invite you into his yoke. His, that he'll share He'll bear your burdens with you. He'll join you. He'll, he'll be your constant companion. Where are we going to work today? That word yoke comes up often elsewhere in Scripture. Here's just a few examples. Remember King Solomon's not-so-righteous or not-so-wise son, Rehoboam? And Solomon had had such high taxes to build the temple. That was, that was understandable. But then to build his own palace... Uh, not so understandable after all. And then when he dies and his son Rehoboam takes the, the throne, which was quite the lofty one, what do the people say? 
please ease off on us. Please lighten the yoke that your father placed upon us. And what's Rehoboam's response? You thought my dad was tough on you? You ain't seen nothing yet. He used whips to chasten you. I'll use scorpions. My little finger will be stronger than his whole, his whole loins. But what were they asking for? This is 1 Kings 12 verse 4. Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke which he put upon us lighter. Please give us a, a burden that is light. Give us a yoke that is easy. And they promise, we will serve thee. Well, here's Jesus as what Rehoboam could have been, should have been. Here's someone who exceeds the wisdom of Father Solomon. Come take my yoke. Or how about Isaiah's marvelous messianic prophecy? Just a couple of verses before that famous, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. What's the promise? Two verses earlier. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. That's what he's come to do, to free the captive, to break the yoke. Well, to break the yoke that they'd been under and to replace it with a yoke of his own. The next chapter in Isaiah, he'll say something similar. Isaiah 10, verse 27, It shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck. And the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. And every time you see the word anointing, you've got to think king and priest. You've got to think Messiah and Christ. Yes, the Christ has come. Learn of me, this meek Messiah, a lowly Lord. I know those sound oxymoronic. How could you be a lowly Lord? How could you be a meek Messiah? Well, come and see that I'm not raising your taxes. Like King Benjamin, I'm lowering myself to be able to lift you up. I'm condescending to be among you. And the Son of Man is descending below all things. Learn of me. And you'll see that I'm trying to lift you, not crush you down under the weight of some kinds of commandments that are impossible to keep. No, learn of me. Later in Isaiah, he'll even use the word yoke. Isaiah uses this word. Jeremiah does too. Hosea does as well. So a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament use this same kind of an analogy. But at the end, near the end of Isaiah, when he talks about fasting, he compares that to a yoke also. Remember this from Isaiah 58? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness? To undo the heavy burdens? To let the oppressed go free and that ye break every yoke? Oh, the, the fast of the Pharisees had become its own kind of yoke. The true fast is meant to break those. Or fast forward to the New Testament. This is the last verse I'll give you on this yoke idea. But Acts chapter 15, verse 10, Peter says a fascinating thing. To his fellow Jewish leaders, now Christian, wondering how much of the old law has been fulfilled in Christ and no longer needs to be kept or, or enforced, the way the chief apostle Peter says it, Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. <laughs> There's an interesting admission on Peter's part. We weren't perfect Jews either. Thankfully, we can be perfected 
as Christians in Christ. So why would we take a, a burden, at least the way it was imposed upon us by scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, that wouldn't allow us any wiggle room? And again, we'll see that for the, next, the rest of our lesson today. Why would we impose those kinds of expectations upon Gentile converts to the Christian church? No. Who was our master? He was the Lord of the light burden. He was the Messiah of meekness that wanted to lower himself to the level of laborer so that with his fellow laborers he could share the yoke and his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Then what could possibly keep us from coming? I worry, and again, the second half of this week's lesson will teach us this, will dramatize it. I worry that so often we turn discipleship into such a heavy burden that that's not what anybody wants. And we're so concerned about every step we take and the possible missteps that are going to condemn us eternally. Jesus is telling us that's not the Father because that's not the Son. Elder Holland gave an incredible conference talk once called The Grandeur of God. And it was about Heavenly Father. And he said that, yes, through the atonement, Jesus was trying to improve God's view of humanity. We had a lot of cleaning up to do. But through the incarnation, Jesus was trying to improve our view of God. That this is what the Father is like. All last year in the Old Testament, I tried as hard as I could to help us see the real God of the Old Testament and all of his meekness and mercy, his loving kindness and long-suffering. If you're scared of the God of the Old Testament, you haven't met him. And Jesus came in the flesh, word made flesh in the New Testament to let us see more visibly, more tangibly, this is what our Father in Heaven is like. And he's the Lord of love. Clayton Christensen, the great Harvard business professor, he kept getting voted the greatest, one of the greatest business minds on planet Earth. Passed away recently, sadly. Leaving a hole not only in the Harvard Business School, but a, a hole in the kingdom that's hard to fill. He was such... Elder Ballard himself called him, called Elder Brother Christensen one of the greatest member missionaries of our dispensation. That was amazing. And he spoke once at a state conference in Boston, and he said to the people there, people aren't leaving God to which people would probably, um, have you not been reading the statistics about uh, the loss of faith across the world and the rise of the nuns, the so-called no interest in religion, no religious affiliation? Now, people are leaving God left and right, but no. What Brother Christensen was describing, he said people aren't leaving God. They're leaving the false view of God that their religions have given them. And when I heard that, I was blown away. He's right. They are pushing, they are breaking off their own backs a yoke of a God that is impossibly demanding and largely devoid of love. And that's not the God we worship. If they're leaving the false view of God, then that is opening them to the true view of God that we can introduce them to. 
I've had young students preparing for missions and they have asked me, what do I do if I teach an atheist? And my response is always, oh, ask the atheist to describe the God they, that they don't believe in. And they're always like, well, they won't have anything to describe. They don't believe in God. I'm like, well, but they have some view of the kind of God they've chosen to reject. Ask them about that. And almost every time, once they describe the, the God of their imagination, or the God of their tradition, or their upbringing, or whatever, you'll be able to say, oh, well, in that case, I'm an atheist too. Because I don't believe in that kind of God. But let me introduce you to a God worth believing in. Let me introduce you to a God that was made manifest through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you are laboring and feeling heavy laden, then come unto Christ and understand who He is and who the Father is as made manifest by Him. And He's a God that you'll come running to. I have had similar conversations with people leaving the church. And I've often asked them, please describe to me the church that you're leaving. And they'll roll their eyes and go, you know what the church, you, you are that church. I'm like, no, I don't know your experience in the church. I don't know your upbringing within the gospel. Please describe the church you're leaving behind. And again, more often than not, once they've described it, I can say, oh, well, good riddance to that church. That's, not, that's just not the church that I belong to. It's not the church that the prophets and apostles are trying to build. There's a lot of culture we have to overcome. And I'm sorry you've gotten the, the, the short end of that stick. But to understand what the Lord is trying to create in this kingdom of God on the earth, I'll come and see. It is not as onerous and burdensome as perhaps it's been presented to you. So please come and take the Lord's yoke because it's easy. It's light. Last thing I'll say about this. That's not to say that it's weightless. <laughs> because we're busy as disciples, aren't we? And this is one of those proving of contraries where... I mean, this is the same Lord that was saying, let the dead bury their dead, and I'm homeless, you want to be homeless with me? And if you put your hand to the plow, there's no looking back. We're, we're going. This is the one that's asking us to lose our lives so we can find it? Yeah. Then how on earth is here he's saying that you'll find rest? Well, what kind of rest are you talking about? Section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants has my favorite definition of, the re of rest, and it comes from the Lord, so this is how he's describing it. He defines rest as the fullness of His glory. Remember that as we begin to turn to Sabbath day observance. A day of rest, a day for the fullness of God's glory. I will give you rest that kind. Again, oath and covenant of the priesthood where you, the body will, will be renewed within you. Now that's rest. That's recreation. That's amazing. And that's what the Lord is offering us. I have sometimes asked my students to describe a handcart or like draw one on the board. And they do a pretty good job. And the idea of a handcart is you have these two big wheels and there's the axle and then resting on the axle is a, a bed, kind of the, the trailer, so to speak, the truck bed, that the cart that holds your whole world. Because if you can't put it in the handcart, it's not coming with you to Zion. Now, if someone were to come along and say, hey, can I add some things. Can you, will you take my yoke too? 
can I add some, uh, some of my expectations to you? And you're like, whoa, 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 there's, there's not even enough room in this handcart for the stuff that I hope I, that I think I'll need to get to Zion. Sorry, get your own cart. And yet Jesus comes along and says, take my yoke upon you. Now again, a yoke is a shared load. We can now be bound together. And his strength coupled with mine is now infinite, right? So that's good. But does he also add to the burden? Are there more expectations? Yes, where much is given, much is required. I don't know of many Christians out there that are busier in their discipleship. We call it active. And yes, it's a lot of activity. We're working, we're serving, we're doing. Faith without works is dead. Well, we got a lot of work to do. Not work to save ourselves. Please don't get us wrong. And please don't misunderstand us or mischaracterize us, especially you, my wonderful evangelical Christian friends. We are not buying. This is not works righteousness. This is not paying God back. We understand that it's a debt that we can never pay because it was meant to be a gift of grace from God all along. The Book of Mormon teaches that just as well as the New Testament, so please don't get me wrong on this. But, yeah, we're busy. <laughs> and we want our faith to be made manifest in our work. We want to show God how much we love Him by how diligently we serve Him. But if it starts to feel overwhelming, perhaps we're doing it wrong. If it's crushing us, instead of lifting us, then maybe we need to rethink our approach. I, maybe we need to redesign our handcart. I'll put it that way. So after my students have drawn a handcart on the board, I'll, I give them my, my, my version. And it's one that would never uh, pass muster for a mechanical engineer. But I call it the two-sided handcart. And I'll draw an even bigger wagon wheel in the middle. So big, in fact, that instead of... Uh, it being the axle is no longer what's the, what the bed of the, of the wagon is resting on. It's now what you push. You're found, you find yourself in the middle of this handcart. See if you can picture this in, in your mind, okay? Wagon wheels are so big, you're standing in the middle of it, pushing the, 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 the axle itself. That's how you move this thing forward. Because there's a bed in front of you and a bed behind you. A wagon, kind of the, 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 the truck trailer, so to speak, in front and behind and that's where you place all your stuff. I mean, you've, you've doubled the capacity. That's good, right? But here's the challenge. When we think of Jesus coming along and saying, come unto me, if you labor, if you're heavy laden, I'll give you rest. How? By taking my yoke. And you're like, wait, wait, what? He's like, yeah. Can you study your scriptures intensely every day? Can you increase your prayer life? Can you receive, will you accept a calling? and serve and magnify it diligently? Will you go to the temple? Will you go on missions and give me all your time at certain stages of life? Huh? You admitted that I'm laboring and I'm heavy laden. Oh, I know, that's why I'm giving you all this other stuff to do. Huh? Now, in the old version of the handcart, that's just adding more and more weight, and it's hard enough to move this thing. But in the version of the two-sided handcart, our world is on one side of it. Picture the side behind us, and there's nothing keeping that, that side of the wagon from dragging through the, uh, through the soil. And as it's, you're just pushing, and it's dragging behind you, and no wonder you're so heavy laden. So when Jesus comes around and says, take my yoke, he's not adding to that side of the handcart. That's the temporal 
cares of the world. The spiritual things the Lord is inviting us to do are on the other side. Now, technically, does it weigh more than it used to? Yeah, there's more to do. That's, those are the demands of discipleship. But somehow, miraculously, it doesn't feel quite so heavy because things start to balance out. You understand? He's not adding to the world's weight. He's counterbalancing the world's weight by asking us to take upon him, to take upon us, his yoke. I, in high school, was as busy as anybody I'd ever met. And to wake up early to do my paper out and then go to early morning seminary and then go to an early morning class <laughs> to work on academic decathlon stuff and then go to my classes and then show up to to football films at lunch three days a week and then go to academic decathlon two days a week so that my football coach and my academic decathlon coach were fighting over who, who I was supposed to spend my lunch hour with and then go to football practice after school and then go to academic decathlon practice after that and senior year, it was crazy where it was like leave the house at 5 a.m. and get back home at 9 p.m. and mom would make me two sack lunches so I could have one for lunch and one for dinner. It was insane. But to think about daily scripture study and serving on the youth committee and going to early morning seminary, it's like cut something out of your schedule for crying out loud. But honestly, even at the time, it was like, how can I? That's the only stuff that keeps me afloat. I would get crushed under the world's weight if I didn't have the Lord's help to counterbalance it. I feel the same thing. I felt the same thing through grad school. I feel the same thing now. Now, please, please don't. I'm, I'm probably still imbalanced. I need to soften. I need to jettison some things from my handcart. Um, so I'm not the best example of this. Believe me. Uh, but when it comes to wisely turning to the Lord, it's a great talk from Elder Maxwell called In Wisdom and Order. I need to reread that. Now that the Spirit popped a bit into my head. Thank you for that. I need to have more wisdom. I need to have more order. I need to be better balanced myself. But there is truth, I testify, in the Lord's invitation here that if you're feeling crushed under a, an anxious load, then come to a Christ that is eager to help you. And change your approach. Change your understanding Realize that the Lord is not trying to add to your burden, but trying to counterbalance it. To give you a, an eternal perspective, and eyes to see, and a strengthened back, and a clear discernment of what should stay in your handcart and what ought to go. I testify of the reality of the Lord that invites us to come unto Him. And especially if you are seeking His kind of rest, the fullness of His glory, then learn of him, for he is meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest unto your soul. The challenge of the ancient world, though, the challenge of these scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, these guardians of God, they were not coming unto Christ to learn of him. And the day of rest was being was being turned into a day of, of laboring and being heavy laden, crushed under a different kind of yoke. 
the yoke of the Pharisees was the law of Moses and it is binding and it is crushing and there's no wiggle room here. We have laws around laws to protect other laws. And that's not what Jesus was trying to do. He was fulfilling law without destroying it. And this second half of what we'll see, this is now turning from Matthew 11 to Matthew 12. It's amazing to watch what Jesus does because the Sabbath is such a perfect topic to use to illustrate heavy or light, okay? Yokes and so forth. So turn to Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn. Now, King James translators were infatuated with corn, uh, but they lived post-Columbus, uh, and they got plenty of maize from the New World. This was not corn in the times of Jesus. This was some kind of grain. Picture wheat, picture barley. But they're walking through the fields of grain, and it happens to be on the Sabbath day. Now, his disciples were unhungered. Notice it just says his disciples were. It doesn't say anything about Jesus. But they began to pluck the ears of corn, in other words, the, to get a little grain, and to eat. Now, notice they began to. They're just starting to kind of lifting hand up to mouth, when all of a sudden they are rudely interrupted. And we'll see that interruption in just a moment. The key here is that it's the Sabbath day. And they're just trying to eat. But the Sabbath, okay. Now Luke says that this took place on the, the second Sabbath after the first. But he's not very clear on what the first Sabbath was, at least in his own mind. And in looking through those first chapters of Luke, before you get to this event, all kinds of things have already taken place on Sabbaths. For example, we already saw Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath announcing his own messiahship. We've seen him cast out a, de a demon on the Sabbath. He has been teaching in synagogues on the Sabbath day. That was his custom, right? That's what he was used to. So I don't exactly understand what Luke is getting at with this second Sabbath. But every previous Sabbath he's mentioned... It's a Sabbath a little outside the box. And just Jesus is doing some things that are causing people to wonder or to question. And this is going to take that up to an entire new level. In, in fact, in all of those other Sabbaths, Jesus was doing a good thing. But it was raising eyebrows. Especially to the so-called guardians of the law. And they're the ones that are going to interrupt Jesus here. Notice how they do it. Verse 2, when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. So here we've got a bunch of Rehoboams increasing the yoke, even in the presence of one who is far superior to Solomon in his wisdom. And I always get a chuckle out of this where they're walking through the grain fields and all of a sudden the Pharisees see them begin to eat. Remember that detail? It's just the hands starting to come up. I, I picture a bunch of, kind of like whack-a-mole. I, I, I picture, like, almost comically, Pharisees like hiding down beneath the grain. And they're just looking, watching, trying to make Jesus' disciples an offender for a word, or in this case, a deed. And the moment they grab some, some grain and lift it to their, their hungry mouths, a bunch of Pharisees pop up and they're like, gotcha! And I just am left laughing at these people. Do you have nothing better to do on your Sabbath? I mean, if you consider, because for them, it's like, why are they doing something unlawful on the Sabbath day? Notice the way they, they even say it. They don't ask, is what your, your disciples or apostles are doing, is this lawful? 
No, they've already passed judgment. They assume, in fact, they don't just assume, they declare that it is. Your disciples are doing that which is not lawful. Why? They're, they're eating. We're not stealing from, I mean, this is just the, the fields of grain. You can eat as you pass through. Ask Ruth and Naomi about that. No, 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 no. But they're doing it on the Sabbath. And that's harvesting. That was harvesting? Oh, yeah. In, I think, the Luke account, it even says that they were, they were rubbing the grain between their, their fingers in their hands, which is actually an amazing analogy, by the way, of separating wheat from chaff. What better day to do that than the Sabbath? Uh, to figure out in our own lives, to be sufficiently self-introspective, uh, right? Self-aware of, do I still have chaff in me? I'm going to go partake of the sacrament today. That's a great way to separate wheat from chaff, renew my covenants with the Lord, start to fulfill all righteousness a little bit better this week than last. So yeah, we should all be, we should be rubbing the wheat in our hands on the Sabbath day. But as far as the Pharisees were concerned, oh no, 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 that's winnowing. That's threshing. I mean, you got the whole harvest operation going on here. And you picture these poor apostles going, with a handful of grain in their mouth, or in their hand, or maybe some in their mouth and are kind of spitting, spitting out some kernels like, uh, you call that harvesting? You call that threshing and winnowing? I call that eating on the way. And that's lawful. Man, you guys looking for any kind of misstep. I, in a way, I could probably call that work. You private detectives, you police enforcers, Oh, what, what, are, what are you reducing Sabbath day observance down to? Well, notice the Lord's response, verse 3 and 4. But he said unto them, Have ye not read? Mark's version says, Have ye never read? Luke's version says, Have ye not read so much as this? So all three synoptic gospels are, are telling this story. But I love the, the way they're describing it. Have, do you never read scripture? Uh, have you only read enough to get maybe... Oh, did you get stuck in the Isaiah chapters too? Uh, missed too many days of seminary or institute? Uh, come follow me, new to you? Come on, people. Uh, now, that, that's probably Matthew, Mark, and or Luke getting a little snarky uh, more than Jesus. But as Jesus is asking them about their scripture study, he pulls out a precedent to, to share with them. He says, Have you not read what David did when he was unhungered? And they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. Now, you want a good precedent, go to King David. Because David's everybody's hero. Well, here's the son of David uh, who outranks him. But to turn to that, and notice he's not turning there for some kind of rationalization and to justify his actions. No, he's turning to a scriptural precedent to try to understand, does it apply in this circumstance? Remember, it's Satan that pulls scriptures out of context and that rests scriptures to throw them in the Savior's face when he's tempting him. And I think sometimes we end up doing that, like, can I find a verse to justify what I'm doing? No, in this case, Jesus is simply, this is not the first time something like this has happened. And one superior to David is among you. Now, the specific story he's calling attention to, if we remember this from last year's Old Testament study, remember when David is on the run from Saul. And David, 
trying to honor the Lord's anointed when he could have killed him to protect himself. But no, Saul isn't returning the favor. Saul is trying to kill David and anyone that's willing to help him. And this is an example of that, one of the most horrendous. David and his men are on the run. They come to Ahimelech, the priest, and they have nothing to eat. And so they ask him, do you have anything? And he said, I don't. I'm so sorry. I would otherwise. And then the realization, actually, I do have one thing, but it's the bread that the priests eat in the tabernacle. <laughs> Over against the candlestick, there's the table of showbread, these holy loaves of bread of life. That's just for us. And even we can't eat it until we've produced the dozen loaves for the coming week. But under the circumstances, I can see that desperate times call for desperate measures and that you are the Lord's anointed. More so than the one who's still wearing the crown. So yes, under the circumstances, the spirit of the law would suggest that I give you these. And so he does. Now, if you remember the tragic aftermath of that story, when Saul finds out that anyone had the gall to, to help his enemy, Doeg the Edomite goes and kills Ahimelech and all the other priests that were around that day. A massacre in response to his mercy. That's tragic. In some ways, I wonder if Jesus is hinting to these Pharisees who would have known their scriptures inside and out. Have they read? Yes. Have you never read? No, they've always read. Okay, have you read so much as this? Oh yeah, they know it inside and out. So when he, by dropping hints about David, I wonder if he's also dropping hints about Saul. Is that who you intend to be? Are you looking for ways to have me and my followers massacred because we're doing something you consider out, outside the lines of your precious letter of the law. Are you going to be a David or a Saul here? Who will you be, Pharisees? I'm the son of David myself. Are you going to be sons of Saul? Now that was the first precedent. Jesus then gives them a second precedent. He knows the scriptures well, after all. He says in verse 5, Or have you not read in the law... How that on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless. And what he's saying there is, if the Sabbath is supposed to be a day of rest, tell the priests that. Because it's their busiest day of the week. Since the people that they're serving come to the temple to be served. They come to the temple to offer sacrifice. And so their worship causes your work. I always laugh at that every time I've been in a bishopric. And like, okay, the day of rest? Yeah, whatever. It's the day to do all the rest of the things I didn't get done in the, in the rest of the week. <laughs> uh, the first time I, I had an eight-hour church day as a high school kid, I was so excited about it, told my dad, and he was in the state presidency, and he just laughed. And he said, that was a good warm-up. It's a good start, son. Man, uh, be the Relief Society president. Be the Elders Quorum president. Be in a presidency. Be in a position where... To help people worship, you do a lot of work. And it's still, but it's still worshipful on our part. At least it better be. Uh, if it's God's work and his glory to bring to pass the immortality, eternal life of man, then his days of glory, like the Sabbath, are days of work for him too. But it's the work that's the fullness of his glory. See how those connect? Work and glory? Same for us. In fact, when I was running the institute uh, program and the seminary program in Tennessee, 
I had to work so often with priesthood leaders. Uh, I was like the one employee in a sea of volunteers, right? And so what days can, are they available? I'm not going to force a priesthood leader to come see me on one of my work hours. Because <laughs> for him, that's the middle of his work week and he can't spare it. But to go meet with high counselors and priesthood, uh, state presidencies and, and bishops and training seminary teachers and anything else I could do, so much of that happened on the weekend and frequently on Sundays. And so it was a strange thing for me to wrap my head around that, like the priests of ancient Israel, I had to do a ton of work, quote-unquote, on the Sabbath because my work was to honor the worship of other people. I hope that makes sense. It made sense to Jesus. We'll see if it makes sense to the people he's, he's teaching. He quotes one more scripture, though. Uh, in verse 6 through 8, But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. The temple is, is the busiest place on, uh, in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Okay? Uh, we do it differently in our day because we go to church on Sunday and we can go to the temple other days of the week. But here I am, the Lord of the Sabbath, and one greater than the temple. So I'm your other precedent here. I know what I'm doing. And then he goes on. But if ye had known what this meaneth, and here he is quoting another scripture. Third one, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. If you would have known your book of Hosea, in chapter 6, verse 6. This is actually the second time he quotes this, by the way. The first time was when he was being accused of eating with publicans and sinners. That's back in Matthew chapter 9. And he quotes this same verse. Well, now he's doing it again as he's being accused of breaking the Sabbath. What, you, what, would, what would happen if you really understood what this means? I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Well, if you'd gotten that verse correctly, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And that's what I am. Guiltless. I am innocence personified. I'm greater than Solomon. I'm greater than David. I'm greater than the temple. It's my day. So don't accuse me of breaking it. And then he sums it all up. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath day. I'm the one who gave it to you. I'm the creator of the cosmos. And on day seven, I did do a little work. I carved out sacred space and created a day of rest. I, I want you to have that. It's one of the best times to come unto me and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. It's one of the best days to take my yoke upon you, because it will give you the strength to keep pulling at worldly yokes the rest of the week. It's like tithing. I know it doesn't make sense mathematically, that you can do more with 90% than you could have with 100. That somehow you'll get more done in six days than you would have working all seven. No, that's the, that's the miracle of my burden. It's light. It's, my, it's the reality of my yoke. It's easy. So come and follow me. You see, this is my day. So I can't break it. I'm the lawgiver, so I don't break my own law. I understand the purpose behind it and the spirit that infuses it. And so these are the kinds of things I do on the Sabbath day. And really what it boils down to is inner attributes far more than outer actions. If you would have understand Hosea 6.6, 6, I care more about mercy than sacrifice. 
even all these sacrifices that are keeping priests and the temple so busy on the Sabbath, it's still meant to give inner attributes to the people that are coming to worship. Okay? Are they bringing their heart and soul, the animal within to lay at the altar? Broken hearts and contrite spirits. That's a lot of work too. But it's spiritual exertion. And I hope the people are doing it. Are we doing those kinds of things on the Sabbath? Or have we made the Sabbath a day of don'ts rather than a day of do's? Or even better, a day of bees, of becoming more like the Savior. I worry sometimes that we are yoking people to a Sabbath that is so stifling rather than so spiritual, that is life-draining rather than life-affirming, and so focused on the outward actions we should or should not do rather than the inward attributes that hopefully we're developing on that day. By the way, it's here that Mark adds one detail to this story that is absolutely essential. I'm shocked that if Mark wrote first, I'm shocked that Matthew and Luke didn't just copy and paste because it's such an important passage. Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. What do you put first? How do you prioritize these? In fact, if you think about the order of creation, day six, I created man and woman. Welcome aboard, Adam and Eve. Glad to have you here. And the, what, was, what ended up being day one for them, this is actually interesting. It's day seven for me. I've been hard at work for six days straight. Uh, technically, Adam and Eve didn't do much work on day six. They just were created, okay? Thanks for breathing in the breath of life. Glad to have you here. But for your first full day, how do I want you to begin existence? By remembering me, the Lord of the Sabbath. I've given you a gift, and your first full day of life, you get to unwrap it. And it's a day to remember me, a day to come unto me, a day to learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. It's a day to fill up that side of the handcart. <laughs> to be ready for whatever the world's going to pile on you the six days following. Can you imagine if it was the other way around? And he's created, you know, let there be light. And he separates light from darkness and then sea from land and, and atmosphere and firmament above. And then he adds plants and he adds uh, animals. And then it's like, ooh, this is so cool. This is like, uh, you know, the, the, a nature video. This is going to be an amazing documentary someday. But my crowning creation is the Sabbath, because the Sabbath is the day that, mm, it's all about me and the fullness of my glory, this jealous God. So I want a day that is just dedicated to me. So day six, let's do that. And then I picture him, if that were the case, going, oh, wait a minute, the animals don't quite get it. And plants don't know what they're doing. Um, ah, I should create like, I don't know, like people. Like mini-me's, uh, men and women, and they can like run around uh, so that there's people there to honor the Sabbath. Because what a tragedy to make the Sabbath and not have people see what a glorious thing it is. So yeah, 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 that's what I'll do. I'll create man for the Sabbath. Yeah, then the Sabbath will get the respect it deserves. Perfect. No, that's not what he did. He created man and woman first. And then realizing that his crowning creation would need some time to remember him. Ah, yes. 
than that. I better prioritize that and put it first and foremost. Put God first in their lives for their sake, not for me. I'm not that kind of jealous God. I, it's not like I'm physically exhausted after six days of creation and I just need a day to spell myself. No, I created man and woman and they need time to be spiritually recreated themselves since that's what the Sabbath's for. It's a day yeah, to finally say, I'm very good thanks to the creation of God within me. It's a day to be freed from my bondage. That's the Exodus version of the Sabbath. It's a day to become at one with God. That's the New Testament version of the Sabbath post-resurrection. Ah, is that happening to me on the Sabbath? Because it was made for me, not the other way around. I had a student once, new convert to the church, just wanted to do things right. And so once she asked, can I do this on the Sabbath? And does this break the Sabbath? And, and she was really had all these examples of like, does this break the Sabbath? And she was, her heart was in the right place. She wanted to do right. But just the way she kept asking, does this break the Sabbath? Does this break the Sabbath? It struck me for the first time that break is a really good word. And I asked her, what does it mean to break something? Or if something is broken, how do you know? What's wrong with it? And we came up with the idea that when something's broken, it doesn't work the way it was intended. Hmm. And then I reposed the question. So let's think about, instead of all these actions, let's think about the purpose of the Sabbath and what it's for, that it was created for our sake to create us into something very good, to deliver us from the bondage of the world, and to help us become at one with God. Those are the three main scriptural precedents for the Sabbath. Okay? Genesis and Exodus and, and the Gospel of John in some ways, okay? New Testament. Uh, or the book of Acts, you know, apostles, uh, disciples coming on the first day of the week post-resurrection. Anyway, in this conversation with this wonderful student, it was a good paradigm shift to think, am I making decisions of what to do and what not to do on the Sabbath based on their purpose? And will they help me fulfill those divine purposes for the Sabbath day? Because at the end of the day, maybe I didn't do anything that would be considered to break the Sabbath. But if I didn't do anything to keep the Sabbath day holy, or better said, to allow the, whole, the Sabbath to keep me holy, to make me holier, then maybe I broke the Sabbath through sins of omission rather than sins of commission. Because when all was said and done, the Sabbath didn't work for me. It didn't function according to divine design. Huh, it must have been broken. That's weird. It didn't work right. Well, what can I do next week to make sure that it works the way God intends? And that's a great approach to the Sabbath day. And then Jesus, one not just to, to talk, but always one to show, gives them some visible examples. And it's amazing what he does for the rest of this, uh, this Sabbath day ministry. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, it says, When he was departed thence, after this conversation out in the wheat field, he went into their synagogue. This is the same Sabbath in Matthew. In Luke, it's another Sabbath, but either way, it's still Sabbath day. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. Now, actually, the more I thought about this, I think this is an amazing metaphor for what the Pharisees are trying to do to Jesus on the Sabbath. Trying to wither his hand. 
like you're not allowed to perform your work on the Sabbath. You want to take these almighty hands of God and shrivel them up, wither them, take the life out of them, no virtue flowing into them. And sadly, that's what we so often do to the Sabbath ourselves: withered hands. And yet, what does Jesus do here? Here's the man with his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him? You see, back in the wheat fields, there was no question. It was just a straight-up accusation. Your disciples are doing something wrong. Here, let me just ask you something. Here that we are in the presence of someone with some kind of malady, and knowing the compassion of Christ is going to be drawn to him immediately, I honestly wonder if they brought him there themselves to kind of pit Jesus against the situation. And we're going to see them do that with the woman taken in adultery. Are they doing the same thing with this man with a withered hand? Perhaps. They're just looking for accusations. And this man is their pawn. They're not asking sincerely. They're looking to make Jesus an offender for anything he does here. And in fact, in the Luke account, it's even more sinister because they don't say anything. They just lie in wait. The whack-a-moles are ready to pop out of the grain field again. This, from, outside, from around a column there in the synagogue. Luke 6, verse 7 and 8, this is how he puts it. The scribes and Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. Find one. They're looking for it everywhere, everywhere they can. But he knew their thoughts. And said to the man which had the withered hand, Rise up, stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. Which to me is amazing, because Jesus says, Oh, you want to play that game? Oh, I'm willing to play. You want to see what I'll do? Then let's make sure this is visible to everyone. Because I do want people to understand how the Lord of the Sabbath treats his holy day. So, dear brother, come forward. Get some people thinking about you. Maybe that's why they invited you in the first place. Now, in the Luke account, he asks the scribes and Pharisees a question first. In verse 9, Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Let me turn the tables a little bit. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil? Or to put it differently, to save life or to destroy it? You see, what you call work, I call doing good. You remember my work and my glory are to do good things? In fact, it's not even about doing or not doing. The real question is good or evil. Doing or not doing good. Doing or not doing evil. It's the outcome, not the action. It's the inner attribute, not the outer action. You understand what Jesus is really trying to zero in on here? Now, in the Matthew version, he starts to answer his own question. Or at least help the scribes and Pharisees come up with the right one. So he asks in chapter 12, verse 11 and 12, He said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? Of course he will, is the, is the subtle hint there. Okay? Especially among these poor, poverty-stricken day laborers, of course they're going to work on that day to get their sheep back because they need every single one. Well, it's with that in mind that Jesus then asks the real question. How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. To answer your question bluntly. You are worth many sparrows. You are provided for better than the fowls of the air or the lilies of the field. This man is worth more than a sheep. 
especially to the Good Shepherd. And so, what does he do? By the way, in all of this, in the Mark account, as Jesus asking all these kinds of questions, it says that the people there held their peace, which suggests, oh, they knew the right answer. They knew exactly what Jesus was getting at. But it's like, well, we're going to pretend these are just rhetorical questions and I uh, hope we don't get singled out because of, we don't, we don't want to give the answer because we know his answer is the right one, not ours. So verse 13 and 14, then saith he to the man, and in Luke's account, he's looking round about upon them all, as he says to, to the man. In the Mark version, it says, when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. See these added details? Mark says, let me just talk to the man. Luke, no, I want eyes on everybody else. Mark, I'm frustrated. I'm righteously indignant. Again, better term. The, the anger is the indignation. The grief is the righteousness. That's the interesting thing. Maybe anger is not even the best word here. Being, and, and you catch Mark correcting himself immediately. He looks on them with anger. Oh, no, never mind. With grief, with sorrow. So sad that they're not understanding what the Sabbath is for. And they're not recognizing the Lord of the Sabbath right in front of them. Well, with all these details in our mind, Jesus says to the man, stretch forth thine hand. That's it. There's no laying on of hands. There's no outward, no outward action that can be described as work. Jesus just says something. Stretch forth thine hand. It's interesting. He's putting these scribes and Pharisees in a tough place as far as judgment is concerned. He's not rubbing grain in his hand. He's, there's no harvesting and winnowing and, and threshing. No, just, hey, brother. See, I don't know, a withered hand there. Stretch it out. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole, like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. In the Mark version, by the way, it says they took counsel with the Herodians, but with the same end. We've got to destroy this guy. The Herodians? Those are the people that are in support of Herod who's a puppet ruler for Rome. So now we're first really starting to see church and state combine against Jesus. Pharisees, there's church. Herodians, there's state. And everybody's ganging up on this rival authority. The king of kings and lord of lords that they want to oppose. In the Luke version, it even says they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. Sure enough, they are turning more into Saul than David or, or into Ahimelech. And we've got to figure out a way to destroy this man that seems to be going against the law of God. How, how misguided all of this is. And again, they are really going beyond even... Would this hold up in any court? What did he do? Tell me the work he did. To, to heal this man. Well, he told him to reach out his hand, but there was no movement on Jesus' part. He didn't lay his hands on him. He didn't do anything. There was no physical contact. No. In fact, Jesus hadn't even <laughs> gathered the grain as they were walking through. It says that the apostles did, but it doesn't say that Jesus did. Interesting. He even held himself to some higher standard, but they're hungry. It's fine. It's, this is not breaking the Sabbath. So interesting here. I mean, can you, get a, can you get a sense of why Jesus later on 
will accuse these Pharisees of straining out gnats, but then swallowing camels. Looking for the tiniest thing, a gnat is not going to get through our fine tooth comb. Not a grain, not a kernel of grain that your apostles are eating. You said something and he was healed. We're going to count that as work. When I was a student studying abroad in Israel, we had a rabbi that was teaching uh, some classes on, on Jewish history. And he was an amazing guy, and we all loved him. He, we were talking about the Sabbath once, and it was interesting as he was describing, I mean, there's a, a very wide spectrum of Judaism, okay? But as he was describing Orthodox Judaism, the most intense, uh, it was interesting what he said about some things that were considered not lawful to do on the Sabbath. For one, he said, well, lighting a fire is definitely work. So you can't light a fire on the Sabbath. And we're like, okay, that's okay. He said, well, what does it mean to turn on a light bulb? In a, technically, isn't that a little fire that's burning within that bulb? Turning on the oven, isn't that lighting a fire in there? It's like using electricity, isn't that? And we're like, wow, really? He said, yeah, in Orthodox homes. He said, what do you, so you stay in the dark? He said, oh, that's the beauty of automation. And when you can put your timer on, just make sure you set the timer on Friday before Saturday's Sabbath comes. And then if it turns the fire on, turns on the light, you weren't working. We even said, he even said, well, driving. I mean, I, I don't know if this w would work with electric, <laughs> with a Tesla, I, but, but the way he described it was turning the ignition lights a fire in the engine. And so you don't, turn a, you don't turn the car on on the Sabbath either. And we were, we were dumbfounded. We're like, really? A bunch of curious Christian college students. And like, but what, do you, what would you do if you had to get somewhere? Let's say your wife is going into labor and you got to get to the hospital. And with a twinkle in his eye, our rabbi said, well, there usually always seems to be a good Gentile nearby that's already breaking the Sabbath. And as long as it's on his head, then we're, we're good to go. And a little tongue-in-cheek, he said, oh, yeah, we just asked for a ride. Oh, okay. It's just interesting what we end up doing if we, and again, I don't want to say anything negative. I, I'm actually amazed and so impressed with how seriously the Sabbath is taken in Orthodox Judaism. We would sometimes go on the Sabbath to go braid Shabbat bread, Sabbath day bread, in the ultra-Orthodox part of town. And we had to wear our Sunday best, and we had to be on our best behavior, even to be allowed in to that part of Jerusalem. And I was just impressed and amazed by those who honored that day so seriously. So I don't want to, to come across as negative here. But what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees of his day, he had every reason to be negative because they were ruining. A day that was meant to be a blessing had become a curse. And Jesus needed to cast out these demons to be able to sanctify the Sabbath day. Now from here, we're still going to see Jesus do, doing some things on the Sabbath. But we're going to expand out and see some more parts of his ministry. For this, let's jump to the Mark account. Uh, he leaves that situation there with the man with the withered hand and these issues over the Sabbath day. And he goes on to continue his ministry. In chapter 3 of Mark, verse 7 and 8, Jesus withdrew himself from his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. And it wasn't just the Galileans. 
They came from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea, which is further southeast, from beyond Jordan, east side of the river. They about Tyre and Sidon, so north and west, a great multitude. And talk about a mixed multitude. They're from everywhere. When they had heard what great things he did, they came unto him. There is no avoiding these gathering crowds. One more reason, like we saw last week, for him to send forth apostles to help him. Next, verse 9 through 12 of Mark 3, he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. Now, this might be some distance for safety. We call that safe distance. It might be distance for acoustics, like he did before. Let me just launch out a little bit so I can continue preaching to the multitudes and more can hear me this way. But while all these people crowding, thronging him, Mark tells us, for he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had plagues. Again, sounds like the woman who dared, the woman with the issue of blood. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. They knew, even if the mere mortals didn't. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Quit spreading the word. I don't want publicity in, from you. I want it from people who know. Now, there's a similar story in Matthew. And in the Matthew version, verse, chapter 12, verse 15 and 16, when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him. And he healed them all and charged them that they should not make him known. So he's still trying his best to keep this messianic secret. It's not working very well. Everybody seems to know. But all this healing, if he's trying to stay under the radar, then healing is not the, not the best thing to do. But again, moved with compassion, he can't help himself. And you see this, as far as Matthew is concerned, as a fulfillment of prophecy. So no wonder he can't help himself. He, he quotes Isaiah here, and in Matthew 12, verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. And he's going to quote from Isaiah 42, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. Obviously, the Heavenly Father knows that verse too. He said similar words at the baptism, right? Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Well, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. In other words, he's not doing this to be seen of men. He's not trumpeting his reputation before him. He really does want to keep the messianic secret, but he can't help but heal. He's moved to serve and to lift and to bless. So he does it every chance that he can. Matthew then continues quoting Isaiah with a powerful description of what Jesus' ministry is like. He says, A bruised reed shall he not break. And smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Even outsiders will be brought in because of this trust in the Messiah. Now think about the analogies that Isaiah is using. And few people had better analogies than he. A bruised reed. Now, earlier we saw Jesus talking about John the Baptist and reeds shaken in the wind. Now, imagine a reed that's so shaken by the wind that it's now bruised. It's, I mean, think about the structural integrity of the stem. And let's say that it's, when the wind's been so heavy, strong to it, or somebody was walking through it and, and bent some stems. Well, 
if the next person walked through and brushed up against a, a, a cattail with a bruised stem, chances are whatever remaining structural integrity the stem had is now gone and the, the weight of the top collapses onto the bottom. And you just broke that reed. Well, not Jesus. Somehow Jesus can walk through a bunch of bruised reeds and not break any of them. Talk about being gentle. There's no bull in the china shop here. The other example he uses is smoking flax. And this might be even easier for us to wrap our heads around. Think about starting a fire. I hated being the, 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 the kid at scout camp that had to start the fire. It's like, only one match. Or not even one. And you're just trying by friction or anything. And you got your kindling and some small sticks and are you making the little teepee or are you doing the, 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 the cabin? There's all kinds of ways that we learned it in, in, in Boy Scouts, right? But to me, what I always hated was they're like, oh, blow on it. Once you start to see the smoke rise, that's what he's getting at with smoking flax. See, if flax is just this light, that's really good kindling. But when it starts to smoke, but yet, hasn't yet really caught fire, then blow on it. And I hated to be the blower because I didn't know how hard to blow. And I always thought, I'm going to blow too hard and I'm going to blow it out. And then we're back to the drawing board. Or I'll blow too soft and it won't do anything. won't do any good. So it was finding the Goldilocks zone that was so hard for me. It wasn't hard for Jesus. He knows just how hard to blow. He knows just how much justice or just how much mercy. He knows when to dance and when to mourn. He knows when to tell you to put your hand to the plow and when to tell you that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus Christ is the perfect prover of contraries. And this is one of my favorite passages to illustrate that. No wonder even the Gentiles want to come in because he doesn't scare anyone away. No wonder we trust in him for healing, whether or not the healing comes according to our timetable. Remember, it was Jesus that trusted in the Father. He knows what he's doing. And we can trust in the Son. If you are bruised by life, Jesus will not break you. If the fires of your faith are just beginning to grow, Jesus knows just how hard to blow on them. And I, for one, am incredibly grateful for his perfection in proving these contraries. I need to get better at it myself. Jesus' perfect wisdom is then mingled with his perfect power in the next passage. Verse 22 and 23, Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb. And he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. This is the son of David. This is the king of Israel. He's the king of heaven and earth. He can cast the devil out. Even devils that leave people blind and dumb. And doesn't that describe what the devil's always after? Blind our eyes so we can't see. No wonder Jesus comes as the light of the world. Bind our tongue so we can't speak. No wonder Jesus comes as the word made flesh. 
He wants us to witness and witness, see and speak, come and see, and then go and show and bring more people unto him. Now, this should be great news for everybody. It is for most, but verse 24, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, ah, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Beelzebub, by the way, literally means Lord of the Flies. How's that for an interesting title for, for the adversary? But this prince of the devils is now before the king of kings. And yet, Pharisees, spin control? I mean, talk about an amazing exhibit A to confirm people's faith. Oh, no, no, no. We somehow have to separate man from miracle and... <laughs> We've got to condemn him despite of all this incredible good that he's doing. I see people do that trying to, you know, character assassination for Joseph Smith and so many others. Saying, oh, no, no, this, the only good thing, maybe some good things came, but it's an evil man behind it. And this person is doing it through the prince of the, the devils himself. Now, this is actually the second time that the Pharisees have tried to spin things after Jesus has cast out a devil. First time it happened was back in chapter 9. Now it's happening again in chapter 12. This time, though, Jesus talks about it. It says in verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. That's the phrase that Abraham Lincoln laid a hold of during the Civil War. Jesus goes on, If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? So, to you Pharisees, accusing me of being the Lord of the flies, if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, uh, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. Really interesting how Jesus is defending himself. The logic is one thing. Now, the logic that, that Lincoln saw. But the example he brings up, I'm not the only one casting out demons. Even some of your people are able to do that. Uh, faith is not something I alone have. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. Remember, don't, don't envious thou for my sake. No, I wish that everyone had these powers. Some people actually do. But my question is, do you attack them? Do you accuse them of being demoniacs themselves and it's only by the power of the devil that they're able to cast out fellow devils? What I love about this is he's not just defending himself. He's defending other people not named Jesus, that are doing similar good work. And what I love about that is, in some ways, it's Jesus saying, can't we all be on, in this together? If the purpose is to help people, please let me do it. I'm letting you do it. I wish that we could do this more with people of other, of other religions, friends of other faiths. And I hope that they don't attack us for the good we're trying to accomplish. I really hope we don't attack them for the good that they are accomplishing. We are in this thing together. We have the same goals. We can work together on so many things. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 28, but if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, so it's not Beelzebub, it's the Spirit of God. That's how I'm doing it. And what evidence does that give you? Then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Luke's version is even more emphatic. If I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. I love that. Matthew's, it's the spirit of God. Luke, it's the finger of God. And Jesus himself has that finger. 
He goes on, or else how can one enter into the strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man? And then he will spoil his house. If these devils are working for the prince of devils, then how do I cast them out without first having power over the devil himself? In some ways I see Jesus here saying, I'm the one who cast Lucifer out of the war in heaven. Well, I came down to the new battleground, and I'm still doing what I did before, through the same power and for the same purpose. Luke's version is even stronger here. Luke 11, 21 to 22. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. And in this case, it's the Lord that is the stronger one. It's the devil that is, that is being over, overpowered. But to, to mention the fact that Satan is a strong man, that he's armed and has armor, ooh, talk about a counterfeit armor of God. Talk about a counterfeit sword of the Spirit. And what is the adversary doing? We're going to have to be, take away his armor and his, and his armaments if we're going to help free people that are under his power. The Matthew version then continues, chapter 12, verse 30, with Jesus saying another very famous thing. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. There's a hymn in our hymn book where the question is asked, who's on the Lord's side, who? And that's what the Lord is getting at here. Whose side are you on? Is he's drawing the line in the sand. I mean, the Pharisees have already done it, and they're definitely pushing Jesus on the other side of it. You're on the devil's side. Actually, there's two lines in the sand. There's the line of those that are truly on the Lord's side, and there's the line of those that are truly on Beelzebub's side. What about people that seem undecided? Because what's interesting about this passage, the Lord says, hey, if you're not with me, then you're against me. And now there's only two, there's not three groups, there's two. You have either chosen God and put him first, or you're against me. There's opposition. But there's a different version of this. You see, in Mark chapter 9, there's a time where John, as in Peter, James, and John, does something similar to what Joshua had done with Moses. And we've already brought up this story. Envious thou for my sake. Okay? But in this case, John runs to Jesus and says, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. So same kind of context, uh, healing of demoniacs. We saw somebody casting out. And he followeth not us. He's not one of us. Maybe this is one of those people Jesus was referring to. Well, how do your children cast out devils, you Pharisees? So someone that isn't among the twelve apostles. And so John says, we forbade him because he followeth not us. He's got to be on the right team. And he's not, he's not a card-carrying member of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. So, no, 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 you can't do it. Now, Jesus says to John, forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. I mean, if he's doing that, he's closer to me than you realize. And then he puts it in these terms. For he that is not against us is on our part. Now, this is what I want us to wrestle with for a moment. We just saw Jesus say to the Pharisees, if you're not with me, you're against me. But then he says to John in a different situation, he that is not against us is on our part. 
That's why I'm trying to put this into three groups instead of just two. The stark duality of just good versus evil, light versus darkness. We're getting there, okay? Choose you this day whom you will serve. But what about spiritual Switzerland for now? What about those that are still a little undecided? Who gets to claim them? Because in one version, hey, as long as they're not fighting against us, they're doing us a favor. We'll claim them. You got that, John? Let him keep doing his thing. It's good work. Or, if you're not fully on my side, there is no neutral ground, and you might as well be opposing me. Your sins of omission make you as guilty as somebody else's sins of commission. Huh, which one do we, which one's right? Well, Jesus said them both, so I'd say both are right. In my mind, I picture a Venn diagram, because now we have three groups. There are those that are obviously on the Lord's side. There are those that are obviously on the adversary's side. That's why Nephi was so dualistic in his writings, where it's, there's only two churches out there, Church of God, Church of the Devil, people that build up the kingdom of God, people that try to tear it down. That's it. But what about when they seem to overlap, the, the middle part of the Venn diagram, is it hot potato? Is it tug of war? Who gets this group? Because at one point Jesus says, oh, they're with them. And the other time he says, oh, they're with us. Well, in, at one level, perhaps Jesus is truly honoring their agency. And you are the ones that are going to decide. Will you be against me or for me? Because as light and darkness further polarize, Eventually, there's no more middle ground because the Venn diagram no longer overlaps and you better have chosen a side before the split. Are you on the Lord's side or not? I think another way to say it is based on the context. When he is facing opposition, and that's this, this Matthew version that we're seeing here, in the face of the Pharisees accusing him of being the devil himself, when it's wartime, if you're not with me, you're against me. Because the bullets are flying and there's no middle ground. But to his apostles, when people are doing good things and they seem to be opposed to it, that seems to be more like peacetime rather than wartime. In which case, they might not be on our, in our camp, but they're on our side. And so... As long as they're not fully opposed to us, please let them continue to do their work. Again, I, as you wrestle with these things yourself, think about this in terms of interfaith work and people of other denominations, other religious beliefs, other approaches to things, other political parties, whatever. It, it's, can we reach across the aisle? Because Jesus does that. But at the same time, in moments of opposition, you got to know who your friends are and who are your enemies. Okay? Interesting things to wrestle with. Now, speaking of being with me or against me, and that's what the Lord's been wrestling with here. And in some ways you could even say, the great statement attributed to many a speaker, that in essential things, unity, in non-essential things, diversity, and in all things, charity. And that might help us balance the middle ground. Are they, on, are they with us or against us? That might help too. But speaking of being with or against, look at Matthew 12, verse 31 and 32. Wherefore I say unto you, and these are for those that are against me, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, 
but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, that's me, it shall be forgiven him. I'm okay with that. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, I'm not okay with that. It shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. So it's not merely what you think of me. It's what the Spirit has witnessed of me. And if you have fully received that witness, and I mean fully, uh, the, if we're talking son of perdition here, if we're talking denying the Holy Ghost, he doesn't explain it here, but Paul will talk about it in his letters, and the Doctrine and Covenants will talk about it as well, that a son of perdition, you have to know so fully that, when, that your rejection is so oppositional. It is Lord of the Flies. It is Beelzebub. There's no middle ground here. And with full understanding and absolute intent, I would take down Jesus a second time, even if I knew he'd risen from the grave after the first. That's why Paul calls it crucifying Christ afresh and putting him to an open shame. That's defiance. That's war in heaven level. So no wonder you join those who lost the war in heaven. That's outer darkness. None of us will see the light clearly enough to even qualify for that kind of condemnation. But Jesus is being very bold here. Of those, again, if we're talking about Beelzebub, while we're on the subject, let's talk about Lucifer, who absolutely knows who the Lord of light is, but is so bent on snuffing out that light. Is that, is that who you want to follow? You'll never get there, but that is the direction you're headed in, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So make up your mind. How am I casting out devils? Through darkness or light? Whose house am I a part of? Because are we divided against my, am I divided against myself? The way he says it in verse 33, either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. This is what we saw back in the Sermon on the Mount. By their fruits ye shall know them. You're seeing good fruit, but you're accusing me of being an evil tree? Make up your mind. And help us help make these judgment calls based on the fruit of my labor. That's what I'm doing for these others, non-Christians, not my follower, not part of our group, but they're doing good things, then I'll honor that tree and judge it by its good fruit. Uh, compare that to the kind of fruit I'm seeing in you, Pharisees. And <laughs> I think I'm justified in condemning the trunk. The way he says it in verse 34 will remind us of his cousin John. O generation of vipers, just what John had called them earlier, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. <laughs> what's coming out of your mouth is revealing what's going on in your heart. So yeah, just keep, those mouth, keep the mouth moving, and you're giving me a really good view of what's down deep. He says, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things. You see good run throughout that? It's a good thing coming out which means it's a good treasure out of which it's coming, which means it's a good man that holds the keys to that treasury. On the other hand, an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things, evil all the way through. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Choice is yours.
What slips out of your mouth when your mind is unoccupied, when it's on autopilot, and you haven't stopped to think about what will people think of me if I say this? No, it's just you smashed your ham with your ha- finger with a hammer, and what's the first word out of your mouth? C.S. Lewis called these rats in the cellar. That when you go, turn on the light in the cellar, without any advanced warning, that's when you see the rats scurry. If you come in banging pots and pans or tromping down the stairs and then turn the lights on, the rats had plenty of time to go leave, to hide. And you have this false sense of security that there's no rats there. Oh, there probably are. It's only by the suddenness of the provocation that you'll discover if you're an angry person or not. And as Lewis said, it wasn't the suddenness of the provocation that made you angry. It was the suddenness that revealed to you what an angry person you are. What's coming out of your mouth is a window to what's in your soul. We need to clean up both. Now, in the Mark account of all of this, it's mostly all the same conversational details as what we're seeing in Matthew. Though this time it's the scribes instead of the Pharisees, to which I would say, well, potato, potato. But when these scribes accuse Jesus of casting out devils by the power of the devil, Jesus asks an interesting question. How can Satan cast out Satan? Which is just funny to think about. Is this some kind of self-exorcism? Where like you grab yourself and yank yourself out? Uh, No. Jesus then talks about houses divided against themselves, just like we saw in the Matthew account. He talks about sinning against the Holy Ghost, just like we saw. But then he expands upon that with this thought. This is Mark 3, verse 28 and 29. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. That's pretty broad. All sins, wherewith soever, is that even like a word? (laughs) Anything, anything can be forgiven. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness but is in danger of eternal damnation. So there again, we're talking sons of perdition, staring into the light and denying and defying it. Actually makes me wonder, is is it an unpardonable sin because God just said so, I can never get over that? Or is it unpardonable because they would never repent? And that he's still, even to them, sons of perdition, extending arms outstretched, please come and I will be merciful. But if you would crucify Christ afresh, knowing who he is full well, then no wonder they would never repent. They would rather try yet again to get rid of him, which never works. Since none of us will be sons of perdition, maybe it's best just to stick with the first half of that passage in Mark 3 anyway. All sins can be forgiven. So wherewith soever, we even need new language to describe how merciful the Lord is. You can be forgiven. You are not outside the redeeming reach of the Son of God. You have not squandered his sacrifice. You haven't wasted his loving kindness. Just repent and come, and you'll be clean. Now again, sadly, his immediate audience doesn't get it. And though they'll never become sons of perdition either, they're tracking in that direction. They are not for Jesus, and they are definitely dead set against him. No wonder Mark 3, verse 30, because they said, he hath an unclean spirit. That's what they're accusing him of. 
but they're wrong. Now, sadly, they're not the only ones saying it, and that's not all that they're saying. So if you keep going in the Mark version, this is chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. The multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. Remember that, by the way, when we get to the story of the multiplying the loaves and the fishes. The, the apostles are used to being hungry because there's no time to get food. There's always work to be done. This is tough, okay? I mean, the burden is light, but, but you do get hungry, okay? So there's not so much as to eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, on Jesus. For they said, he's beside himself. Now, this is odd. When it says his friends, other translations even say it's his family. And when it says that he is beside himself, some translations say he's out of his mind or he's lost his senses. Now, what's going on here? Now, please remember, Jesus has been constantly teaching, preaching, healing. He's been crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee, going back and forth to different parts. Jews, Gentiles, you name it. All people are gathering to him. Everywhere he goes, he's being thronged by the multitudes. And he's blessing and healing every chance that he can. He's preaching in the meantime. He's going up and pulling all-nighters on the mountaintop to pray and be in tune with the Spirit to know what apostles to choose. Here's a man that is sleep-deprived, has low blood sugar, and you picture friends and family members worried about him. But is it only worry about him or is it worry about themselves? Now, not on Mary's part. We know Mary is faithful from start to finish, but there is evidence of some of Jesus' own half-siblings not believing in him. When we talk about no man is prophet in his own country, how about under the same roof? It makes Joseph Smith all the more shocking that his siblings, his family, were so true to him and had such faith in his divine call. Jesus descended below all things, including that, to have own, his own half-brothers and sisters. I don't know. He's be beside himself. Let's lay hold on him. Let's bring him back in. Let's get him out of the public eye because the public eye ends up on us too. And everywhere he goes or wherever I go, it's like, hey, aren't you related to that Jesus of Nazareth guy? Is he like, can you not bring it up? So Jesus, can you come back behind closed doors? That's a possibility of what is happening here. Now, by the end of this episode, there came then his brethren and his mother, and again, on her part, it wouldn't be doubt, it wouldn't be embarrassment, but it certainly would be worry because Jesus never seems to eat or sleep. Sound like a mom worried about a child. And standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. See, they won't even come directly themselves, but they're, they're worried about you, or worried about themselves, either way. They, they want you to come. Now Mark 3, 33 to 35, Jesus answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. Matthew's version makes it even more familial. It's not just whosoever shall do the will of God. It's whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven. That's how you join this spiritual family. It's spiritual kinship over physical ties. Will you do as I command? Will you follow me? Or will you be ashamed of being seen with me? Are you like some of my 
spirit, my, my physical siblings that are only half connected to me and don't want to be connected all the way because that would be a source of sorrow for Jesus. We'll see some of that change over time as we continue to study. But back in the Matthew account, look at chapter 12, verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee, which is shocking after all that Jesus has been doing. You want more evidence? Go ask John's disciples what they saw. Ask any of the multitudes what they've seen. And you come demanding more signs as proof? Oh, no. He answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And adultery is such an interesting thing to invoke here. Because aren't adulterers, oh, they're not content with the love of their spouse. They want, they're looking outside of it. So they, I don't know, maybe they think there's not enough evidence of their spouse's love. They're not true to me. Why should I be true to them? That's the kind of person. Are you not tied into your covenant relationship with the Lord? This is covenant infidelity we saw so many times in the Old Testament. So no wonder adultery is used here. An adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it. Well, maybe one, he says. The sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, this is one of the first public hints of Christ's death and resurrection. You sign seekers, you'll get one. Well, you'll get one too late for it to fortify your faith. You will jump straight from doubt to perfect knowledge because I'll live again. And you didn't take advantage of your days of doubt to begin exercising faith along the way. Oh, no. Be true to our covenant relationship. Don't be adulterers here. In the Luke version of this, by the way, slight change. Here, too, he talks about the sign of Jonas the prophet, but then says, For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. And that's interesting. Because it's not just that he's going to come forth on the third day. The Ninevites didn't get to see that. Uh, that was just Jonah there at the seashore. But as he walks... I mean, incredible distances inland to get to Nineveh. What sign did the Ninevites get? They saw someone crying repentance, warning them of the consequences of their sins. And they listened to him. Why won't you listen to me? That's a more immediate sign. By the end of my ministry, there will be an obvious sign of the prophet Jonah. But in the meantime, I'm your Jonah day in and day out. Unlike him, I'm not hesitant in accepting my mission call. But are you hesitant in heeding my call to repent? If you are, then you're worse than the Ninevites. Ooh, there he is again, throwing, throwing shade at his own people and elevating outsiders who are setting an amazing example to people who should have known better themselves. That's what he gets at in the next passage. Back to Matthew chapter 12, verse 41 to 42. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Let me give you another example. The queen of the south, this would be the queen of Sheba, shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it 
For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. So yet again, we have outsiders passing judgment on insiders. We saw that in invoking Tyre and Sidon to come to the witness stand against Chorazin and Bethsaida. We saw that with, with Sodom being called to the witness stand against Capernaum. And here we're seeing the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba condemning those in the house of Israel that seemed to be too close to the action to realize the source of this strength. Again, I hope. Will, be, will it be those of other faiths passing judgment upon the Latter-day Saints? Will it be non-Christians passing judgment on Christians? Saying, if only we'd known who Jesus was, we would have followed him more fully than you have. Is it converts paying, uh, passing judgment on lifetime, lifetime members? You had this your whole life? I wish I had. Look out for Samuel the Lamanite. He's got a, a witness to bear. And then the Lord gives an interesting parable that in some ways might prepare us, might prime the pump for next week where we'll get all kinds of parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. This one's a little trickier to understand though, but it's one of my favorites once you get it. Starting in verse 43, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, and that's what I'm trying to do for you. I'm trying to call repentance, so, so are the, all these non-members through history, trying to get you to cast out the unclean spirit. You're divided against me, and I'm the king of this house. Don't, don't fight me on this. Repent and allow these unclean spirits to leave. But then be careful how you, what you do in the aftermath. Because here's the story. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. And who's the one that's out there walking around? It's not the man. It's the unclean spirit. You see, he's just been evicted. And he's like, darn it. I can't possess. It's like me and my, my legions worth of friends. You cast me out of the man. Can, I, can you at least give me a chance to occupy the swine instead? This guy doesn't even have any swine to occupy. It's dry places, seeking rest, finding none. So what's he do? Then he saith, ah, I got a great idea. I will return into my house from whence I came out. Let me just, I don't know, full circle. I'll go back and attack again the guy that I once possessed. Is exorcism permanent? Hmm. Is repentance permanent? Or do people sometimes fall back into their old ways? Well, let's go see. Now, when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. And then goeth he, and taketh with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Now, for a lot of, lot of years, I read that so confused. Like, what on earth is he trying to say? Like, oh, don't repent of the sins you've got because they'll just come back with worse sins than you started with. So, yeah, like, hold on to today's bad habits because you don't want things to multiply. What? That does not sound right. Well, it doesn't sound right because it isn't right. So what's he getting at? The key here is the phrase empty, swept, and garnished. Because what's happening, if you have a bad habit, if you're struggling with a sin, you're over, trying to overcome an addiction, 
but it fully occupies your house until you're finally able to cast it out. The next question is, how long does that last? And better question, what are you doing with your house in the meantime? Because if you've left it empty, swept, and garnished, isn't that what happens to the hotel as soon as you leave the room? It's, you're gone. The room is now empty. The maid comes in, and now it's swept. They put a little mint on the pillow. It's been garnished, and it is screaming, unoccupied, vacancy. Come on in. We're ready for the next guest. In fact, if you've brought more friends with you, we can always bring in a roller bed. That's the problem. You are like the cheap motel that has that old neon light out front that says vacancy. It's screaming, come and stay here. As opposed to being the no vacancy sign. The hotel clerk that says, oh, I'm sorry. You'll have to go elsewhere because every room here is occupied. Sorry. I think we all know that bad habits, even once we've rejected them, have a tendency to come and at least peek in the window or knock on our door. Are you sure you're over that? You sure you don't want to return like a dog to his vomit or a sow to its wallowing in the mire? Oh, those aren't very good analogies. They're not very tempting. I mean, you sure you don't want to have fun again? You sure you don't want to be free from some of the worries and troubles that you're under? Ah, you can always repent, right? I mean, we, Jesus said that. What whithersoever, whatever word he used. So yeah, why don't you let me back in? And we start tiptoeing in back into that filthy water. Or we start leaving the door cracked. That's what Elder Holland joked about, that we cast out a devil, but then we give him our forwarding address. Don't be gone too long. I'll miss you. Oh, careful. So what's the Lord hinting at here? When you've cast out a bad habit, replace it with a good one. How do you get darkness out of a room anyway? Stand at the door and try to shoo it out? No, you bring in light. Or think about Jacob 5 and the allegory of the olive tree. How do you cut out bad branches? Only as good branches grow. It chokes out the negative because you brought in so much good. I actually had a student once years ago come to me and say, I've been struggling with a sin. And I'm not here to confess. I already did that to my bishop. But he said I could talk to you for just advice. I keep struggling with the same problem. How do you get rid of it for good? I said, well, for good is a good question. And part of the challenge of life is that we sometimes expect it just to keep on trying. But one of the important things is, and I actually said this to him, it shocked him. He said, well, I, I think part of your problem is you're just trying to stop the sin. And he's like, I thought that was the the solution. I'm supposed to stop the sin. I'm like, yeah, but only by stopping it? What, like white knuckle and just clench your teeth and your, you know, grit your way through it? Good luck with that. That's tough. Instead of stopping the sin, what do you say you replace the sin? And I showed him this parable and said, do you feel sometimes that you're leaving yourself wide open to a return and maybe even other additional problems on the way? Because your house is empty, swept, and garnished. So what could you fill it up with instead? And he had all kinds of great ideas. 
In fact, later he came back to my office and said, Brother Halverson, I found the coolest scripture. And it was buried in, I think, 2 Timothy. And it's talking about scripture study. But Paul uses an interesting word that the scriptures, he, he uses the term thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And that word furnished caught the eye of this student in the thoughts of empty, swept, and garnished and said, this is how you furnish your house. Your house can be thoroughly furnished with scripture study. So that when that bad evil spirit, when that bad habit comes in and looks through the window, he's devastated. He's totally embarrassed in front of his seven friends. And like, I, I swear, it's always had room. I, I'm so sorry. This, I, this, this guy has filled up his, his, his life with light and truth and service and self-sacrifice. And I mean, maybe we can take a number and see if we can squeeze our way in eventually, but no vacancy today. Sorry, guys. Let's go check the neighbor. You get this? This is a powerful parable. And Jesus is just going to teach you. He's going to keep on teaching more and more of the same. Now, last thought here. Matthew mentions the story of Jesus' mother and siblings wanting to come speak to him. And Jesus talking about spiritual siblings instead. That's how Matthew chapter 12 technically ends. Uh, in the Luke version, it's slightly different, but it still has a bit of a family element here. This is Luke 11, 27 to 28. It came to pass as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee and the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Interesting that it would be a woman speaking of Jesus' mother. I've, always, I've often wondered how Catholicism deals with this verse because it is putting an emphasis on Mary that Jesus removes as if to say it's not about she who brought me into the world. It's about me who is trying to bring people out of the world. If only they'll come. And rather than take your eye off the person you're supposed to be most closely tied to in these covenant relationships, now come unto me. Come unto me. That is my mother. That is my brother. That is my sister. If you take King Benjamin's words about being spiritually begotten of Christ, when you make covenants, ah, that's when he becomes our father of the covenant. That's the father of our faith. And to come unto him as he has been inviting us to do. Again, Mary, we honor you, but it's not enough to bring forth Christ. You have to turn around and let Christ come back into you. Maybe Nicodemus wasn't that far off after all <laughs> about born again. Mary did that beautifully, by the way. Mary was not one of the doubters that couldn't accept a prophet in her own country, let alone among her own children. She knew. She was a certain woman. And may we be certain men and women willing to come unto Christ. I hope that based on what we've discussed today and what the Spirit has confirmed to you, that you see the Father through the Son, that you see the family of faith through the examples of those who came unto him, 
that we see the purpose of all the preparation that John the Baptist and all of his ironic ordinances are meant to convey. More than anything, I hope we are willing to come unto Christ. And I testify that if we'll learn of him, he that is meek and lowly of heart, that we will see a Lord worth coming unto. We'll see that it's possible. We'll see that, especially to those that are laboring and are heavy laden, whether your burden is sin or suffering or sorrow or any other thing, come unto Christ. I testify in his name that his yoke is easy and that his burden is light.